Yo, 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 yo. Welcome to V Radio. Thanks for enduring my entire stream uh, intro there, folks. Um, I had to wait just a bit for Mr. Rossi to get in here. Uh oh. Sorry, I didn't mean to bring on the uh, state propaganda there. Um, <laughs> today, my guest is once again Paul Rossi. Uh, to those of you who did not get a chance to watch uh, my previous show that I did, um, or rather, I guess, listen, it was a podcast that I also uploaded to YouTube. Uh, Paul Rossi uh, was a teacher who blew the whistle on critical race theory um, being introduced into his schools and uh, did an excellent article about it, um, basically saying, I refuse to indoctrinate my children, um, I guess the kids more specifically in his school. And um, we bring him on today to discuss an article that he just did, uh, Uncovering Black Lives Matter uh, Indoctrination in Schools. Uh, one second. So, now I'm sorry about that. Pause for station identification. You're listening to V Radio. If this is your first time checking me out, you can go to v-radio.us where you can find um, all my archives uh, from various mediums, YouTube, StreamYard, um, uh, StreamYard, yeah. Uh, YouTube, Odyssey, BitChute, um, et cetera, et cetera. You can also join me on social media there because frequently YouTube does not always notify everybody. Uh, that I'm actually um, going on or putting out new content. So for the sake of redundancy, I'm going to bring on my guest. Hey, Paul, how's it going? I think you're muted. Can you hear me now? Yep, I can hear you now. Oh, good. Oh, very good. Okay. That means you have a good uh, cell phone, I've heard. <laughs> that's good. Okay. No, actually, I'm at, I'm at a uh, wonderful WeWork in the west side of Manhattan where they have just lifted the mask mandates and the vax passes and all that stuff which so we are um we are running wild in the streets here in new york city uh but i am i am sequestered in this kind of cabin cabinet and if you hear a fan i'm sorry it's just the airflow we'll forgive you this time next time there will be dire consequences you may be forced to watch the home shopping network oh no (laughs) <laughs> okay, they, they have good stuff. Maybe I'll like pick up some some uh, commemorative coins or something. It's an old joke from uh, Alf. So, um, I guess take a moment first of all to once again introduce yourself to my audience uh, and just tell them a little bit about your story. Um, like what made you, you know, go from just being a, a math teacher at a school to being a bit more of an activist. Sure. Uh, I back in. February of 2021, about a, a little over a year now, um, I was I spoke out at a racially segregated Zoom meeting, and uh, in my school, where I taught for nine years as a math teacher, but I had other duties, um, and that led to my ouster from the school. I was reprimanded um, over the next two months. I continued to work there, but it was getting increasingly more difficult. Um, and I was asked to attend restorative justice training, which I, I demurred. I said, I won't do it um, because they wouldn't tell me what it was. And ultimately, I wound up writing an article uh, about what I saw in the students uh, over, the, over the course of my time teaching there, how I'd seen the social justice ideology, the, the critical social justice um, philosophies and the way they were impl- implemented, like what I was seeing how I was seeing that play out in the school community and in the intellectual development of the children. 
and that was published in April on Berryway Substack, April 2021, and that got some attention. So I started to speak more widely. I was on your show. That was great. Um, I can't remember when that was. Was that back? That must have been a while ago now. It was months ago. Um, And yeah, that was by far, I would say, my my favorite interview of yours. I mean, much better than, say, Jordan Peterson or any of these other, you know, people not quite as good at interviewing as me. Yeah, you really drew it out of me. That that was great, Neil. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I'm mostly kidding, but I I, I do appreciate that you, you know, that you're coming on today. Um, That was actually how I discovered you was through your uh, Substack as well. And I think that um, for those of you guys who have not listened to that podcast, you should go back and listen to it. You can find them either on my YouTube or on my various podcast uh, mediums that you can find them. I'm up on a, basically a bunch of different places, Apple Podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but one of the ones, I think, that kind of stuck out to me that I will re- again, you know, basically again share for the audience here, that was one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you, was just the, the description you made of the almost like Orwellian chilling way in which the students who supported you like had to look up at the walls of the cctv cameras to see if they might be you know might be being watched you know um as to you know you know how dare they you know engage in in wrong think with you um that, yeah, that I, really hit home go ahead it hit home for me too and that was what prompted ultimately me to write about it and to go public was because there were students that were afraid um, which I had, you know, I had one student come to see me, came to my office. He wanted to offer his support. Um, and for what I said in that racially segregated zoom meeting, and he was looking, you know, looking over his shoulder, he was afraid his history teacher was going to see him. And he had already gotten in trouble with his teacher for saying that capitalism wasn't so bad. Um, <laughs> and he was afraid he was going to get in trouble again. He was checking the cameras. We have you know, cameras on the floors and he was trying to evade because he thought that the administration would pull the tapes and surveil. I mean, so, it, you know, most most uh, students didn't have that level. But if you stuck your neck out, like many some students did, um, you would be reprimanded. And it was known that you were problematic. Uh, there was a student who questioned, um, you know, transgenderism at a student at an assembly and said what you know how can a man become a woman right um and that was seen as violence and that kid was you know stay after he got an email saying i'll be from the teacher saying i will be watching you to make sure you do better to make sure Um, you do you know and there is statistics about uh transgender death and uh murder uh, murder of transgender people. You know, he asked a question, which a good question, which was, okay, what's the ratio of murdered transgender people to murdered people? And, you know, are those things always, are they always violent and criminal? Uh, how do these things, you know, basically penetrating data-oriented questions about that. So that that got him in trouble. So this was the kind of thing that uh, really got under my skin. This is the opposite of education. This is... Um, this well, is creating a culture of, of, yeah, of fear. It, it, and it's well, it's kind of like forced indoctrination. It reminds me of like the, the quote unquote re-education camps they use in like fascist or, you know, extreme authoritarian communist countries, you know, especially when you talk about just the chilling factor of like, I'm afraid I'm going to get in trouble for wrong think. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, so th- that's, but that's what got us together. And I, I do again, tell everybody, you know, you guys, you should definitely check out the previous show I did with him. Um, and <laughs> excuse the sound of my cat in the background. Um, but anyway, uh, today we're going to be talking about a work that you just did uh, on this website, Legal Insurrection, specifically about um, exposing Black Lives Matter at school. Um, specific, and I've seen some of this kind of stuff because there are some schools that um, that you know publicly support them, and then it's not necessarily that you know the idea of an activist group that's you know that's tr- you know that's for basically trying to prevent police brutality in of itself is a problem. It's that it tends to be a vehicle to get other ideas to float along with it. And um, I guess first, let's start with uh, you know. What made you like, did you just stumble on this or did you experience any of this at the school you worked at? Uh, I got some of this at the school I worked at. Um, some of these ideas certainly were manifested in the curriculum of other courses that I heard about and, and um, in the teacher trainings that I experienced. But I will say that I was very systematic about how I was able to go through many of these teacher trainings. Once I left school, I really wanted to understand what, how, not just the critical intellectual history of these ideas, but how are these being implemented? What, what are the teachers being trained in? And so I was able to obtain hundreds of hours of DEI teacher training, um, classroom pedagogy modeling for teachers. And this was something I came across which there were many, many others that um, I wrote about in a Wall Street Journal editorial last month. But also, if you, there was a Breitbart article that came out recently that had many of these clips in it. I've been tweeting a lot of these clips out from these conferences. So this was one that I thought needed extended treatment because it so perfectly illustrated how these ideas are instantiated in the minds of children and and the sequencing and the ordering of how it's done it's not just you know pop up throw up a powerpoint slide kids and you know learn how to protest it's much more sophisticated and it it, it works in in stages so that you know I, the way i wrote when i wrote this article for legal insurrection i was trying to illustrate that with a sequence of clips that shows how in fourth grade the kids get you know part of the moral framework and then in fifth grade they get the politics lay you know laying on top of that so um i thought this was a a good way to to you know approach it and to show other people that it's not just the chris rufo take a look at this horrible thing oh my god the kids are believing it if it was that easy i wouldn't be so scared um it's not that simple there's there's a sequencing going on and these are teachers that are unfortunately very good at their jobs i mean we may watch this and laugh but we're adults these right. are fourth graders okay when you're in a fourth grade class you know your teacher is not god but they kind of have you in a way like and you're there for a long time in the day and in a way they're carving out a kind of intimacy uh and separating you know you're separated from your parents you have your friends, but they're creating a moral a moral framework within the classroom. 
So I, you know, I hope these clips today, as we go through them, will show that, and we can remember, talk about each one. Right, and I remember uh, in the Twitter conversation, somebody posted a screenshot. I think I actually saved it, but it was like a term that um, for what cults do, like yep. you know, as it's part of the indoctrination process. Then that's why, like, you, what was one of kind of like the one of the little eureka moments I had in my previous conversation with you was just to compare it to grooming. You know, yeah. Well, they may not necessarily intend to have sex with these kids it's still it's the same process to make them more and more comfortable with you know with these ideas especially at a really young age i just did a show specifically about brain development and um because a lot of people are not even aware of the fact that certain parts of their brain are not even really working until their mid to late 20s sometimes not even until your 30s uh, depending on the person um there's a genetic component but the point is is that at these young ages they're so much more impressionable they're so much more trusting of adults and they're still, you know, very much kind of, depending on how they were raised, kind of under the understanding, you do what adults tell you to do, and what adults tell you is automatically right. Um, and th that's um, why this is so dangerous. You know, and as you point out that it's in in layers, you know, one of the other things I remember, even just about, like, say, the way that they handle the, the college kids, is that I had a coworker, I think we talked about her the last time you and I talked, but... She was a coworker at a restaurant I worked at, and she was a you know a smart kid, you know, in college. And then um, she was like, "Oh, I just started going to some Black Lives Matter protests," and then because she knew that I had been part of Occupy, and I was like, "Oh, well, that's pretty cool, you know. Tell me how it goes." And then, um, you know, as she was going, she went from, you know, I, I, I'm anti-police brutality, but you know, I, I don't, I don't hate myself for being white. You know, that that's crazy. I can't believe anybody would do that. And then as the months went by, I just watched her slowly get more and more radicalized until at the other end of it, she was saying things like, I'm not going to have any children unless they're with a black person, um, if I don't just get sterilized, like, because I'm like, holy crap, you know, but yeah, I remember if, that, if they yeah. had tried to say that to her on day one, she'd have just turned around and walked away. You know, they, they don't they save the really crazy crap until they've really, really got you reeled in. And, um, you know, that's just how they handle young adults. And that can even work with adults, you know, just like even fully developed, depending on, you know, how, what game you're playing. But there's a reason why most of these cults tend to start their numbers with relatively, you know, young adults. And it's because, you know, long term thinking isn't working yet. So but let's take a moment, I guess. Let's go ahead and get into it. Um I'm going to go ahead and blow this up a little bit better so everybody can read along with us. Video exposing Black Lives Matter at school, a deep dive into indoctrination of fourth graders. University of Chicago lab instills BLM's principals and elementary students, then builds on that foundation to turn them into activists. Hosted by Paul Rossi. Oh, that guy must be pretty cool. I think I've seen him on a show once or twice. But anyway, <laughs> um, Believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. Now they can articulate how racist the Star Sangled Banner is. Of course, they've got Colin Kaepernick up here. Okay. <clears throat> As part of my investigation to the National Association of Independent Schools, People of Color Conference, I watched Growing Young Voices, Understanding Black Lives Matter for Teachers, a presentation where two elementary school teachers at the $35,000 a year University of Chicago Lab School detail their implementation of the Black Lives Matter school curriculum. Referencing seven video clips from that session, I will show you how these educators inoculate, or inoculate what's that inculcate. word? 
inculcate. Yeah. I just learned a new word. Oh, yeah. BLM principles and their fourth and fifth grade students and then build on that foundation to steer them towards activism. The session is still available for purchase on the NAIS website, but may cause browser security errors. So an archive is also available. In the past, the NAIS has published clips, removed, and scrubbed web pages after links to their material were published. And in fact, this one did get scrubbed in days after this article went live. So they pulled this one off as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, so in other words, we're not going to have it, but could you yeah. tell me about what was in it? Oh my God, it was an hour. Jesus. Sure. Yeah. So these clips, you know, I couldn't publish the whole thing because that would be a copyright violation, but you know, fair use, I can do a couple clips. Uh, I might've pushed it a little doing seven, but I think it's still okay. Um, so, and I backed it up on various other streaming services so hopefully we're we'll be good okay um and this is this is a clip from the beginning um this first one yeah the blm's 13 principles laying the philosophical foundation so uh you can you know if we watch this i don't think we need to read everything i wrote but um the what i wrote was kind of my analysis but hopefully i can give that you know, oh, after yeah, the clip sure, but sure. we watch the clip and then and then let people hear for themselves what they think of what's going on. So um, a little background on BLM at school. BLM at school is uh, funded by the NEA, the teachers union. So they have a direct connection there. They actually got started with, I think, their seed money from them. And they started back in, I think it was 2017, perhaps. Um, and they are a curriculum for elementary school and these 13 principles are characteristic of the of the broader black lives matter movement but they create curriculum specifically for young people to teach them about these concepts which include um, transgender affirmation uh, queer affirmation collective value uh, globalism all of these things so you know we in this particular case, the teacher's focusing on the three that she's highlighted. We didn't, I didn't do loving engagement. Um, that one sounds, uh, I don't think she covered that either in the, in the, in the uh, presentation. She focused more on sort of justice and unapologetically black, which we should really, that's really interesting. We'll, we'll talk oh, about yeah, that. Oh yeah, I saw that was on here. We'll definitely get into it. I yeah. guess um, if there's any moment where you would like to pause. Just let me know, but okay, can... sure. And if you want to pause, fine. I, we, I can clarify, you know, maybe give some clarification. Sure. Like, if I have any like comments I'll make, I'll go with that too. So, okay. here we go. What does this conversation actually look like in elementary school? What does this look like with fourth and fifth graders? So, in there are 13 principles to the Black Lives Matter movement. In the fourth grade, what this does is we lay a philosophical foundation for the Black Lives Matter curriculum. It is a two-year thread. I teach fourth grade and I do the beginning and Carl teaches fifth grade and he takes over. And our students are challenged to think about the hows and the whys of the Black Lives Matter movement. We want them to understand that decency that they get in school is not mimicked by the society outside of school. Okay, can we stop So what we do is we approach- Go for it. Yeah, okay, so that is a big red flag. That's the cult part, right? That's that's one of the features of a cult is that they they want to get you to understand that they're going to create this beautiful cocoon, and they're they're you're going to treat each other well according to this moral 
these moral norms that they're going to create. But everyone outside, maybe your parents, maybe society at large, um, you know, they're not going to abide by these things because they're corrupt and dangerous. But in here, right, we are going to we're, we are more civilized. We are more perfect. We are special. So that's that's a technique that cults use called splitting. So just keep that in mind as we go forward. Sure. Approach the movement's principles on a weekly basis um, as a mirror in their lives. So we try to bring everything to what they're doing on a daily basis. Um, the the thought is that they're going to create. They're going to deeply internalize the things that we're talking about so that they can then go back and start to bridge things with current events that are going on with history that are going on outside of themselves. So the first part is to really internalize what we're talking about. So for our black students, for our children of color, many of them have already begun internalizing this. For my white students, it is much more difficult for them to understand why do black lives need to matter? So what the hell? Okay. All right. All right. So we're going to slow down and, um, <laughs> Uh, you know, there's a lot of tricky stuff going on in here, like sleight of hand, sure. particularly that last line, which I think like like me was you were like, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but uh, earlier in that in that segment, um, you know, she's talking about it is really important that they internalize these things. OK, so that's this is not just something nice to have on the side to keep in mind, you know, as you, you know, as you're doing things and, oh, you know, this would be nice. Some black villages, that's not, these are things that she wants to interject within the character of each student so that they kind of use it everywhere. This is a totalizing thing. Um, and then the last line, why do black lives need to matter is one of these loaded questions, of course, which, which means, okay, what if I just, I think black lives matter because I think all lives matter, or I think that black lives matter as a consequence of the proposition that all human beings have dignity, all human beings deserve respect in equal measure. And I, so I think that black lives matter, but if, but if you're saying, no, why do they need to matter? Why do black lives need to matter? The assumption is that these principles are required for you to believe that black lives matter. And if you don't believe in the principles, well, then maybe you think that black lives don't matter. So that's the that's the screwed up thing that's going on. And so they're bringing in this baggage where, okay, this is part of the moral intimidation that goes on. So you may think that you think black lives matter, but you don't actually think that black lives matter unless you apply the black lives matter principles. So that's how they get in. They shoehorn in the door, all this other stuff. Right. And they tie it to whether this you as an individual can think of yourself as a good person or not. Because if you only good people, you know, only bad people think that black lives don't matter. So if you want to be a good kid, well, then you have to believe that black lives do matter. And here's what you need to understand in order for you to for you to be seen as thinking black lives matter in this way, this extra special way. Anyway, that's just that that I think is really, really devious. Well, no, for sure. And it, it just kind of plays also into just the the way that they 
even with the adults, it's not enough to be to not be racist. You have to be anti-racist. Well, what does that mean? Well, whatever Ibram X. Kendry wants it to mean in any given moment, but you know, and whatever uh, her his uh, white uh, counterpart, you know, Robin D'Angelo gets paid absurd amounts of money for it to mean, you know. But it, that's when it goes beyond just. You know, I, actually, I just said this to Adam Friended the other day in a Twitter conversation. Like, why do they need to discredit? The notion of having black friends. Why does that need to be something that immediately makes you racist? Well, that's because it's the most obvious evidence there is that you're not racist. If you have positive, you know, genuine relationships with people of color in your life, then obviously their race doesn't matter to you and you're a friend of theirs. You know, like that's not a detriment to you. So they need to discredit anything that's the most obvious evidence that that you know that you're not racist. And it's the same thing here. You're telling them like, well, why did you know why do they need to think that black lives matter? The other weird little thing that I'm noticing, I mean, especially when you watch, like, I don't know if you've watched my series about everything's going to be all white. I've only done two episodes about it so I did far. see. Yeah, I watched that. Yeah, that was great. Well, and it's it's mostly, and the reason I'm paying so much attention to this is because, like, some of it is just about current events. It's not just going to be about that show. It's that that show was kind of like a, I wouldn't call it a flagship, but it's like everything that they believe put on, on like, a heavy um, magnifier. And, you know, it, it's they don't want to say this, but it kind of comes down to Black Lives Matter more. You know, like they, they don't want to openly admit that that's what they're going for. But the more I peel away the layers, specifically in certain BLM chapters, for example, you start to find some people that they're, they're not just um, uh, pro-black. They are we are actually the superior race kind of people, you know, and. Some of the critical race theory types, like, did you watch that weird video from the root of that Rutgers professor um, explaining uh, what CRT was and what it was not, supposedly? I don't know if you saw that one or not. but Yeah, this sounds familiar. The black lady, uh, I forget her name. But the point is, is that she was just outright black supremacist through the course of the oh, conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, you know, she's not alone. That's actually quite common. You see that in some of the... Um, you know, ed school gurus that come out like Bettina L. Love, Goldie Muhammad. You know, these are people that are abolitionists, um, which I actually might have something in common with them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they're always talking about black girl magic. Like there's this special black character. Like we are always amazing. Like we are doing these amazing things. Like you don't understand how much we are constantly taking care of everyone. Like this, this, you know, exaltation exaltation of black identity to the point that they are actually kind of these transcendental beings um which is just i mean that's the that's the cornerstone of black supremacy it just starts um, to drift into supremacy. like nazi master race levels of like we not only are we you know we're not equal we are more equal than others it's <laughs> like a little animal yeah exactly so, yeah you know like it's it's not just that we that we're equal we're better you know and then you end up with like she's literally she was literally a Rutgers professor who teaches critical race theory at Rutgers and said that critical race theory is an honest assessment of human history and then went on to say things like people of color were traveling the oceans and peacefully trading with one another and never engaged in imperialism until white people showed up. Just like stuff that's just totally factually incorrect. Like there's nothing correct about that statement. But that's the version that's being taught to our college kids. And if you were to argue with it, like that Rossi guy did at that high school, 
you'd get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and I'm like, um, it brings me to another video I shared with you a little earlier about that college Zoom call class on how to incorporate, you know, critical race theory to your classroom and stuff like that and how to silence kids if they don't like it, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, so yeah, this is all linked into a lot of other things. Um, yeah, it. why do we need to teach them that black lives should matter? You know, as if kids don't automatically think that anyway. Right. My, you know, my experience around young children, I think I mentioned this to you before, was just that I raised, my kids participated in boxing and wrestling that are both very diverse sports. So I'm going to go like into the super long story version of this because my viewers have heard it. But they were already in an extraordinarily diverse circumstance. We literally had a Palestinian and a Jew in our gym, in addition to Blacks and Hispanics and Asians. So the whole notion that people ever thought differently of other people on the basis of their race was the most absurd thing that, that, that my kids had ever heard when it finally came down to me having to explain to them what racism was. That's how kids are. You know, that's that was another thing. I, I, I mentioned this to you earlier, and I don't know if I ever got back to you, but I, I finally dug up a bunch of the studies that went into that flyer that I shared with you that was being circulated in my school that said that white children and only white children are inherently more or less born racist. Um, and I found out that several of the studies in question actually either one only tested white kids in the first place and or two <laughs> didn't even actually say what the people, you know, circulating that flyer said that they did. Um, and in like, for example, one of the other details was that they left out that um, they also found that kids, if given the choice, would prefer playmates who have the same accent as them, regardless of race. So if there was a British white kid and a black American kid, the white kid might actually, white American kid would probably actually prefer to play with the black kid because they had the same accent, you know, um, and they left, they left that out because it doesn't fit the narrative. These are all in the studies right. that they're they're quoting to everybody. And, I, and I've kind of come to the conclusion that they're just hoping you're not going to look this stuff up. The, the average layman oh, is yeah. not going to bother. And the average DEI commissar doesn't even know what these studies are. Like they just have them printed out at the bottom of a PowerPoint slide. And they'll say, you know, the magic word studies show that your children are racist from the age of six months on. Right. And they haven't looked into that particular study, which is really, you know, that that's just like we're going to put two pictures in front of a six year, a six month old. Actually, it was six months. And, you know, 42 percent of the time the the kid crawls towards the one um, that's the opposite race or the, you know, of a white child compared to 58 percent. You know, and so like that's supposed to indicate that there's this preference when, in fact, it may just be, you know, going based on the features of with everything else equal with no other stimuli, the child's going to crawl toward the one, the people that look more like their parents. Right. So right. it's really just the most absurd conclusions that are being drawn and then, you know, pitched as knowledge is it's, well, it's, and you know, I'd love to go into more depth in those things, but totally, well, yeah. we, we totally could, but I was going to say that um, when, if they had suggested that every race did that, I'd be on board because that made my logical sense. But they didn't. And like in the, I have actually have a clip that a guy who was a whistleblower on it was some major no, it was Hasbro. It was a black gentleman who was a whistleblower on Hasbro who came forward to point out that they were passing out this this crazy critical race theory, anti-racist stuff, and that they were gonna try to start incorporating it into toys. And they were doing a presentation that basically said the same thing as that flyer I showed you. 
And it was weird because you have this couple that are explaining everything. And the way they put it is, now, it is important, it is very important, like they really emphasize this, that we make it clear that only white children do this. Like that was that was a very important point to the presentation. And, you know, once I went and did my own reading, it became abundantly clear, no, that's that's not actually what those studies say. And in it, and one more thing I would say before we move on is um, I think that's one of the reasons why the, the grievance studies affair people, James Lindsay and, you know, his two cohorts, the reason why they find, especially the social sciences, just so willing to grab onto any ridiculous woke article that is written is because they want to just be able to have for the, their PowerPoints, crazy woke nonsense that they can in turn just go ahead and share and say, well, studies show, like you said, studies show. That's a great one. You know, if you're listening to the news, it's some are saying, many are saying that the nameless every, you know, like, you know, evidence that, is mounting that. Right. Exactly. But, yeah. <laughs> Hoping that there, those people in question are not critical thinkers or don't watch, say, V radio, where I tell people, no matter whether you're right or left, please explore your damn sources. So we'll go on with this insane video now that we've determined that black lives should, in fact, matter to little children because we didn't know that already, apparently. So what we do at the beginning is pull it out into really small chunks. Okay. I guess that's the end of that one. Good, because that was making me dumb. All right. So there's more. <laughs> but wait, there's more. You will lose brain cells by the end of this, I guarantee you. So she also deploys the oppositional frame that we want them to understand the decency that they get in school. Yep, we went over that. Because this is very important because it's basically just it's like the the church, like the culty church. That's telling you, you know, everything outside of this is dangerous, you know, and that, that's unfortunate because now you're telling this to kids, you know, um, and I, I actually did a video specifically about one of these children's books. I think I already shared it with you, but if this guy who comes on almost looks like Steve from Blue's Clues and he reads a book to everybody, you know, like encourage and in, in it, it included encouraging kids to distrust their parents and saying that their parents are lying to them about race. You know, and that in of itself is nuts. But we have here, so cults employ the similar splitting technique, turning an unsuspected, you know, unsuspecting person against the outside world. You know, in Cults and Children, uh, the abuse of young Arnold Markowitz and David A. Halperin explain that splitting is related to the effort to sever old ties, to split off and isolate effects, which are part of the individual's earlier emotional experiences built up through repetitive contacts with significant others. So do you want to elaborate on that concept? I know we talked a little bit about it. Yeah. So, um, you know, every child is coming into this with their own context, their own relationship with their parents, intimacy they've created that they have as part of being in a family, you know, so by creating this, this world within the school where they can have segregated affective experiences with teachers uh, who are their you know, they're prone or maybe even primed to trust more because their parents are telling them, trust your teacher, do what the teacher says, you know, all the things that your parents tell you when you go to school, they're setting them up to, to they're predisposing their own kids to buy into this. And then that once they create these norms, and we're going to see what those norms look like a little bit within that classroom, that's the sacred space. And then anything that, you know, outside of that, you should have a hermeneutics of suspicion around, you know, what, 
what's going on outside? Can you expect this in the outside world? No, because, you know, the outside world is motive is perhaps, um, you know, that's those are places where they don't have critical consciousness or their their biases are unexamined or they're they're hostage to systemic racism or things like that. So this is just part of that process of of validating the internal by, you know, and, and then setting up an opposition between what's internal and what's external. Right. And I, that's honestly one of the most chilling parts of all of this is that, you know, it, especially the part about like, you know, getting people, you know, kids to distrust their parents. And then they, they put that kind of crap out there and then they just throw all kinds of you're just a conservative Fox News watching nut job conspiracy theorist. It can't be possible that they're doing anything like that. And it's funny is, as you know, I'm not conservative at all. Um, <laughs> and like, it, it's it's amazing to me how many people that I, I actually have in my real life, like people that are friends of mine, not that my activism is in my real life, but I mean, in my personal life that I've known for years, who are telling me, no, that's all nonsense. You know, that's not even real. That's not really happening. And then I'll literally say, look, I got this flyer off of my school website. This isn't, I'm not making this up, you know, yeah. um, you know, but they, they, they're just conditioned, you know, MSNBC in particular absolutely makes make my own, makes my skin crawl with their ability to lie about stuff. But, um, so let's see here. Yeah. Most of this we talked about, um, right. you know, so we can move on. Um, here's where they, she's going to get into one of the important maxims of restorative justice, uh, impact over intent. Oh, that's always one of my favorites. You, it's still your fault, even if you didn't mean it. <laughs> or, or, or rather, it's still your responsibility anyway. Everybody agrees with that. But the idea that I'm offended by the thing or hurt by the thing, even if that wasn't your intention is irrelevant, you're still guilty and should be treated at, you know, as badly or worse than the person who did intend to do me harm. Um, I remember right. running into somebody who was like that. Just because I was winning an argument with her, she said she felt bullied. I was like, well, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bully you. Well, it doesn't matter if you meant to bully me. I felt bullied. And that's what's... Oh, never mind. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So that's that's the conflation of uh, physical harm with, with you know, emotional hurt. Um, yes. Which is, you know, when you put these two things together, you really have like the, the magic elixir of brainwashing. But... We can go sure. ahead and watch this one and, and see what we Move think. Move on from there. So what it looks like in our class is three big steps. The first one is consequence. The idea that my action has impact regardless of intent. That is something they have never heard before, most of them. They've always heard someone say, I didn't mean to hurt you. And that that made it okay. They don't think about how does that person feel. So the example that I give that I give is um, there are two friends in the kitchen. One is making cookies, and this friend wants to go get the chocolate chip cookies that are really high up on the shelf. And the one that's making cookies can't reach it, so the other friend who's really tall moves over to go help get the cook the, the chocolate chip cookies in the process, steps on the first friend's foot. First friend goes, oh my God, you're hurting me. The other one, sorry, I didn't mean to. Still stepping on that foot. I don't mean to hurt you. I'm getting your cookie, your chocolate chips. You need them, but you're hurting me. 
And the kid's like, oh, they just get their foot off. Okay, move my foot. What's wrong? I didn't mean to hurt you. What's still wrong? That foot is still throbbing. Best you can do is say, can I get you some ice? So as if like the person's foot still throbbing is the same thing as the person continuing to intentionally stomp on their foot. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and notice when she says, oh, the kids say, just get your foot off, right? Because the kids are actually sane. <laughs> the kids know that, oh, it's not a big deal. Just get your foot off and everything's fine. Because that's an analogy, which is extremely trivial. And anyone with a healthy sense of resilience or, you know, well, sorry, got uh, foot up. Yeah, okay. Um, do I need you to get me some ice? Do I need you to massage my foot? Is my foot throbbing? You know, does it require restorative justice? Does it require some recompense? Has a grievous tort been done? No. And any sane child knows that, but apparently not this teacher. Uh, we'll finish watching this little clip here. Restorative justice becomes how do you help this person heal? How do you help this person get better? So in our classroom, it's what do you do? How do you make them better? So that just sounds to me like th this comes back to why I said like that it feels like um, why it feels like Black Lives Matter more is that they're not satisfied with just you making it right. They, they, they want a certain degree of submission from you. Like they, they want a certain degree of like obedience, I guess would be the word to put it. You know, like you have to, you have to do your, um, your recompense. You need to say your Hail Marys or, or whatever it is to square up with them, you know, um, including if it was something that you did that you didn't mean to do. And the problem is, is that because of the way these people think, what you meant to do, you know, wait, maybe you did an unintentional harm. It could be something as obscure as a microaggression, you know, or some other invented wrong, you know, like how dare you have um, oh, a certain hairstyle like dreadlocks or whatever, you know, you don't realize that you did harm, but you did. And now that you did, you've got to make me feel better. So, you know, pucker up like South Park did that <laughs> really terrible bit where you see Jesse Jackson, you know, drop his shorts and be like, apologize, you know, like to make him kiss his butt. Sure. You know? <laughs> and that's, well, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the real danger of all this is I, I don't, I, I don't know exactly what it's called. It's like a moral hazard, I guess, where you can, you know, for the same reason that if I was selling you a mortgage, and I didn't have to worry about whether you could pay it back. It's the same thing. If I can claim that I've been wronged and harmed because my feelings are hurt and compel you to remunerate me for, the, for, for a harm based on my lived experience, which is entirely subjective, um, and demand that restitution, well, why wouldn't I take advantage of that? I mean, doesn't depend on race. Any human being who is opportunistic like people tend to be would leverage you know, they'd leverage that and you know that you're actually teaching kids to act without you're giving them a, an incentive structure that has no limiting principle built into it that's just what it does is it's going to manifest more and more resentment right it, it doesn't actually lead to anything positive like 
Um, the, the other thing is, is that there never seems to be a right answer. Like, that's why I said it. It feels more like a supremacy movement. Like, I don't know if you watched any of the clips of the new version of Sex in the City, but it was like um, the... Uh, oh, God, no. White older lady, you know, goes in and like, you know, just does every stereotypical thing that the the woke SJWs would just you know, have wet dreams about, oh, I finally encountered a woman who did all of these things that I claim happen all the time, like to the Perfect point where parent. it's, right, it's almost a parody, right? You know, so they go after her and they, you know, like she goes into the room with the, with the professor, you know, falsely assumes that the professor wasn't the professor because of her hair or just some nonsense like that. And the reality is was to try to make it look like she didn't think it was a professor because she was black. And she just goes on to completely embarrass herself in front of all these college students. And it's like, it's like their wet dream. And then in a different scene, she, you know, she makes a big story out of like, basically the security guard won't let the teacher pass because she hasn't shown her ID. And so she goes up to confront the security guard. Like you must've done that for racist reasons. And then, and then the black teacher still admonishes her. Like you didn't have to do that. You know, don't be a white savior. It's like, you know, you end up, it's just like that pyramid that we talked about in the previous episode it was like, there's stuff on it that contradicts itself. Always believe you lived experiences of people of color, but you're not allowed to say, but I have a black friend who said X, Y, or Z, you know, um, in that instance, right, right. if she didn't say anything about the security guard asking for this lady's, you know, badge, then she's racist. But because she did <laughs> say something, you know, about the security guard, she's a white savior. Yeah, well, this is the no this is what I call the anti-racist Kobayashi Maru, right. right? What do you do? You 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 have the the famous example of the store clerk with the, the white customer and the black customer coming at the same time. Who do you wait on first? You can't win. You pick the white person. Well, you prefer white people. The black person means you want to get them out of the store faster. So, and then you have um, this. It's one of these types of situations. But really, the goal here is submission. The goal is um, you must capitulate to satisfy my grievance. That's that's what's really going on. Right. And it, it, there's no right answer. And that's one of the reasons why it just feels like your only role is just to sit there silently and submissively and just accept anything they say and do your best to not even participate as much as possible. And that's really the only safe way. Do um, the work. Do the internal work. <laughs> right, exactly. Contemplate your your bias and accountability. And so, for those of you who um, are unfortunate enough not to have been exposed to vintage Star Trek, a Koibashi Maru is a uh, um, incident basically that they would. It's a situation during your training as a starship captain where they put you in a circumstance that is literally unwinnable, just to evaluate how you will handle it. Um, but there is no actual way to win. So that's that's the whole leadership point behind it. But so it's a catch-22, a Koibashi Maru, a, you know, there's really no way out of this short of you, you know, like you're going to lose no matter what. And that's how I feel they want it. They, they want it so that if you happen to be white or male, and although I've noticed there's an awful lot of hammering on white females lately too, um, and I suspect, because I know that another problem that comes up frequently is that women of color are not fond of the fact that you know, that white women end up with black men. So they've got to, you know, tear them down too. Um, I can only, you know, speculate to that, but I remember a certain episode of this horrible show on the route called Judge of Characters where they were admonishing, um, oh God, 
childish Gambino because he has a white wife and he never talks about her, you know? And she went on to say, well, love is love and everything, but then just kind of shame the guy for the entire episode for, you know, why are you dating a, a white girl? You should be dating a black girl, you know? But anyway, mild um, side. Yeah. Intrasexual competition is a big driver of this, frankly. Right. Well, for sure. You're onto something. Yeah. Well, and they needed, well, they needed to just make sure that they tear them down too. Um, you know, and to be somewhat fair, I do agree with their assessment that some of the most vicious, virulent, like nasty social justice warriors I deal with do for some reason happen to be white women. Um, but that's the, but that in of itself shouldn't be a reason to label them. You know, that's where it becomes a stereotype. But, it, you know, if you push that too far, that's when you just delve into the world of racism. So um, impact, not intent. You know, you explains Dr. Lyle Escher explains the difference of the word choice, impact and impact, not intent. Impact typically describes the interaction of physical objects, whereas response is used for the reactions of people. Substituting response with impact subtracts the re reasonable expectation of agency and self-regulation on the part of the person claiming injury. It renders the reaction reflexive so that all responsibility for the perception of harm debounds upon the initiator. So let's break that down in a more simple way of talking. Sure. Okay. I like this. I got this totally from... Um... Dr. Lyle Asher, this is one of the better, um, more insightful treatments of impact, not intent. And that is that impact is a physical word. It's something when an asteroid hits a planet, there's an impact. Um, you know, when I slapped, when I slapped you, there's an impact, right? So that impact takes away, you know, and how you react to an impact um, is automatic, right? It automatizes reactions. So there's a crater that forms, there's a, a red mark on your face, there's, so it takes things and puts them, first of all, in the physical realm, so that this is, an, again, one of these elisions from speech into violence, mm -hmm. because physical objects are physical, um, not sound-based or, or meaning-based. And then it also subtracts, you know, response, if I say, well, it's response, not so it means it takes away the... The ability of the person who's impacted, so to speak, from this internal loop to say, well, I get to choose how I respond to this. I get to say, well, am I going to overreact? Am I going to get angry automatically? Do I have some responsibility to regulate my emotional uh, response to this? Do I, you know, if somebody calls me a, gives me a microaggression, do I have any duty to, you know, just you know, roll with it or not take it that it's not that big a deal. Um, that's all removed from the equation. So it's simply the the only person responsible is the person who is making the utterance or doing the action. That's what I mean by rebounding upon them. That responsibility sure. is entirely coming from them. And this this gets to this idea of the burden of tolerance. So in a in a in a sane society in a tolerant society, you have, I mean, I, the way I see it is you have a burden, right? So like, you know, maybe 50% of the burden is don't be a jerk when you're around people. And then 50% of the burden is on the recipient to say, well, don't take everything so personally and, you know, don't overreact. And that somehow that that kind of negotiation, that, that presumption that there'll be this this unknown, you know, unarticulated negotiation is going to be okay. But when this, in this system, 
it's a you know it it becomes a kind of collectivist morality because all, the entire burden of tolerance is put on the the person who acts the person who speaks so that means that that person has to has to accommodate the collective with all that, with anticipating any possible harm from the person who they think is most likely to be offended before you even say anything or do anything so this this is a tremendous chilling of speech of our of creativity of you know parhesia you know which is the utterance of you know blunt truths to to power to social mobs right and you know that that whole thing gets derailed and corrupted by this maxim impact not intent and that's what makes it so wonderful in a way like wonderfully uh i guess economical and communicate in, in instantiating this collectivist uh morality well i think like what the what this works for 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 me like as far as like what it reminds me of it would be what happened to brett weinstein at evergreen college they were allowed to invent an offense essentially they were allowed to say that he was being racist just because he didn't agree with their their new version of the day of absence and then like they were even able at that point to make certain demands of what he would have to do as far as penance essentially and they would punish anyone who didn't go along with it but what it amounts to is i can invent that you made me uncomfortable you did me harm it's funny as we ended actually the last conversation about the the word harm and its definition and how you could talk for hours about what their new versions of harm is or violence for that matter. But basically to the layman, what it is we're saying here is, is that you have the power if you are one of these oppressed people, as I brought up, grievances will also be seen as more legitimate if they are seen to politically align with the interests of a group already considered oppressed or traumatized. So the idea is, is that I can say that it's racist and then you have to respond as if it is racist even if it's not, that's actually something that happened a lot at Evergreen was that like, if anybody was being even mildly reasonable, no, we'll tell you when it's racist was something they would literally right. say. And that right. reminds me a great deal of the chilling effect of the inquisitions and the witch trials. We'll tell you what, what is or is not blasphemy. We, we'll tell you, you know, um, and as a consequence of that, you're, you're in jeopardy because anything you say at that point can be twisted in that way. Anything you do at that point can be twisted in that way. Um, and that's actually something James Lindsay talked about um, on his channel was he brought up critical car theory. As in he literally just wrote a critical race theory about cars to demonstrate how you can just adjust reality to make it so that literally anything can be connected back to you know, racial oppression, you know, or oppression of anybody. You can just, you know, it's it's the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon joke. You know, like that the point is is that you can always make a connection any way you want. There's some way to do it. Um in religious cults do stuff like that. You know, um when I was involved in the church, sometimes they'd have different ways to make anything satanic. When you look at the satanic panic of the eighties, for example, I literally remember watching a uh, a priest say something about how some of the robots and transformers had red eyes, which was obvious signs of Satanism. People were writing books about why you shouldn't let your kids play with transformers based on these, you know, just really obscure notions. If you twist anything enough, especially if you have some kind of obscure um, uh, that, you know, information that only you have and only you can interpret, which is what they want critical race theory to be this thing that 
only the appointed clergy have the power to determine like wh whether or not something is or is not racist, and you better listen to us and pay us $25,000 to do a 45-minute Zoom call like Mr. Kendi. You know, um, and if you're not doing enough, then it just means you just, you, you don't care. You don't care about black lives. You don't care about trans lives or, or whatever. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, that's a good way. That's a good summary of it. So vocabulary is priming reparation. <laughs> so here we're going to get into, cause vocabulary is very important for this teacher in the fourth grade. And she's going to talk about, uh, why it's so important. Um, is this just um, more or less just to point out, you know, to kind of, is the idea here that we're trying to set these kids up to be okay with reparations? Is that the plan? Well, uh, yeah, watch the, we'll watch the clip and roll the clip. And I think that'll, you, oh, that'll no, explain it better than my words will. Yeah. Got it. Reparation. What actions are taken to repair the harm? How am I repairing the harm every single day? Harm doesn't get better one time. Harm needs to get better over time. I use the words consequence and reparation because language is important. They need to start to hear the language so that when they get to Carl and Carl says, oh, we're gonna have a debate on why we need to have reparations for slavery in America. It's not that he's not teaching them this meeting because they've already internalized what a reparation is. They fundamentally know reparation has to be with making something better over time. So um, one of the ways that we do this is also with reading. So we have done front desk this year um, and one of the characters, Hank, is arrested for a crime he didn't complain and he's vindicated and the police officer comes to say he's no longer being charged. And the police officer says, well, what can I do? And he says, well, you can be better. And at this point, my fourth graders have had this for several months. And they said, that's a horrible response. All right, let's talk about this. Why is it a horrible response? And they go through, there's no real change. There's no reparation. He's not doing anything. And so my fourth graders are already starting to like get into this idea of how, do I, how does society not help each other? Okay, that's the end of that one. Sure. Uh, you know, basically what you're saying, yes. So vocabulary is priming. Reparation is a unmitigated good, right? It's a moral imperative. Um, when they get to fifth grade and they get to Carl, Carl is the fifth grade teacher at the school. And Carl says, you know, we need to have a debate about why reparations you know, why we need to have reparations for slavery in America. That's not a debate. That's a discussion about why you need something. Um, uh, they already have been primed. So, you know, they know that reparation is a moral imperative. So how much of a debate is it going to be if we start having a debate about reparations and, well, if reparations are good, and what we have to have reparations, right? So this is the kind of sleight of hand that allows these teachers to say that they're constructivists, that they're student-led, that they have debate, they have discussions in their classes. Um, but the, for, the conclusion is foregone because it's already, the kids already have had the morality put in and they're not talking about what are the unintended consequences 
you know, who are the people that will pay for these reparations? Will the reparations accomplish the, you know, what will be the social effects of those reparations? What are the costs and benefits of it? You know, all of these questions that are important in a, in a, in a real discussion of something are all out the window. And what you have left is reparations good. Um, and to challenge that means you're a bad person. Well, so and that, yeah. oh, go ahead. No, no, what basically. Is, and then, um, yeah, I forgot. The, so go, you take it because I forgot the second half of the clip. Yeah. Um, it was going to be, you know, just to say also is that let's also not forget that we prime them for the idea that I can tell you that you've offended me in some way that requires reparations, even if you didn't mean to do so. And since you don't even have to mean to do so, that means there's very little. Um, how would I put this? Uh, very little. Well, there's no need for a burden of proof, of course. You, you can just say, nope, you offended me. So now I'm due reparations. You better hand those over. Whatever that is, whether it's just like, you know, social favors or whatever, or whether or not it translates into something more tangible, it doesn't change the fact, you know, again, so they want to have the power to demand reparation from anybody for anything, you know, any imagined slight any slight that they have just kind of crafted out of the narrative, you know, like you need, you, you owe me reparations because you wore a hairstyle that, you know, was akin to my people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but as you pointed out, only if you are fit, you know, under the right circumstances, like only if you, um, you know, like as in only if you're one of the approved oppressed classes that is allowed to ask for these things. Yeah. And then, and then the reading example she gives of Hank, who's wrongfully accused the police officer, you know, what can I do? Um, you can be better. Uh, do they also do a story about when, if somebody named Hank breaks and enters a store and takes money from the register, um, how does he repay his debt to society? What are his reparations to society? Uh, that that's not being discussed, right? That's that's not even perhaps seen well, as a crime. And Black Lives Matter describes looting as reparations. Yeah, right. In defense of looting, I mean, there's that famous uh, <laughs> paper. Um, so the right, the natural order, and this is critical race theory. The natural order of things is systemically dominating and oppressive. So any any crime going in that direction is not really crime because it's a crime against property and there's insurance or whatever. And that's simply taking what's been stolen from you. Um, and any, and any state, any, you know, any slight, even marginal slight microaggression, but actual things like this uh, of the oppressor against the individual. Now, I, I think that's a good question to talk about. Like, yeah, maybe there are reparations due in certain instances when when you're wrongfully accused. And that's something that is true for everyone. That's not a Black Lives Matter principle. That's that's just a principle, the individual and the state, right? But they've, they've racialized this. Um, so they're looking at everything through a racial lens. So that's another distortion going on here. Right. And in particular, one of the other things that's a really common theme is that it is becoming completely acceptable to make collectively responsible all white people for any of those perceived things that they feel they've been slighted about, including things that took place before anybody in the situation was born, um, including things that have nothing to do for them. All white people are accountable 
for whatever it is that they've said. You know, like that's it's really common um, because and it, as far as like just like when they're just discussing in, in particular, they say white people do this. They say white people do that. Like, you know, like that crazy uh, professor who got to talk at Yale, for example, her whole rant, like including that I fantasize about shooting white people with a gun was white people do this, white people do that, white people, you know, she got to sit there and talk at Yale for an hour doing that. She didn't cite anything. She just stated emphatically the following things about white people are all correct and it was not asked for any kind of burden of proof or evidence or anything like anything actually. Um, and she got to talk at one of the most prestigious universities, you know, ever, you know, and just openly just tell everybody all this bad stuff about white people. And that was considered normal. And if you don't agree with that, then you're racist. You know, yeah, and there's uh, this, there's a lot of white liberals, of course, that love that that buy into this, that do the self-flagellation, that based on their own sense of culpability. Um, now, the thing is, the thing that's interesting about about that, like why why do so many uh, woke, you know, white people um, buy into this? It's you know, it, it's a I think it's a weird kind of power trip because it's almost like, you know, I. I am beneficiary of privilege from all, all 400 years of domination and slavery. And so I am, whether I'm immigrated here 50 years ago or not and had no ancestors that owned slaves, it doesn't matter because I'm white and in this system, white people are privileged. So I get to participate. I get to be like this, you know, in this great moral, um, you know, passion play. So there's a, there's a weird kind of... Um, power trip in this i see uh where you know by you know only the great only the a great and powerful person can be truly evil so you get to be great and powerful and you get to punish yourself for it and submit to punishment so you you kind of get it you kind of get this the joy of being powerful and also the joy of punishing yourself Right. Of showing just how, you know, that's what's really what the virtue signal is about. You know, see how righteous I am? You know, look how righteous I am. Look, look what I did. I'm being righteous. Did you notice how righteous I was? Um, you know, that's it, it. That's literally how they operate. And that that's the reason why the virtue signal thing works the way that it does, is that they get certain social power from it. I actually just did a um, show specifically, not just about Jesse Smollett, but about all of the different hoaxes that just happen to come to mind for me. Why, what is the point of that? Why do people do that? It's because you get a certain degree of social status for being such a victim. And if you're not in a situation where you feel like you're getting enough attention, like literally one of the students who engaged in a race hoax on a, in a university campus, she got caught because ironically, uh, they had put up more CCTV cameras to protect against hate crimes because she kept reporting all these crazy hate crimes. They couldn't find who was doing it. So then they caught her on video, literally lighting a fire in her own dormitory so that she could tell everybody that it must have been a race you know, attack. Um, and one of the things she confessed to the police was that I didn't like that just nobody was listening to me anymore. Like, because she wasn't important anymore. Because she wasn't recently a victim. You know, so anyway, we gone off a little bit but yes i get the idea of priming reparation and to give the idea that you know um i should just be you know to guys kind of cap this off i should be allowed to determine that you have offended me or in some way harmed me even um or even engaged in violence didn't they tell you you were violent i think they told you you were violent at school was it was it you 
Um, no, they, they told me that I harassed the students, which I thought was pretty funny. Oh, okay. I, I, they, I'm sure somebody out yeah. there thought you committed violence with your words. <laughs> yeah, no, I caused harm for sure. Definitely harm. harm. Yeah, yeah, definitely <laughs> lots, lots of harm. They couldn't explain what it was, but I definitely did some harm. Right. Um, but the point is, is that so I should be allowed to determine that you have done harm and that therefore I am due reparations and that you should just go along with this. And of course, you can't question it in any way or therefore that's evidence of, you know, of you being a witch. It's we've hogtied your legs and your arms behind your back and thrown you in a body of water. If you happen to float, well, you're a witch. We're going to burn you. And if you drown, well, at least your soul's with God. <laughs> so moving on. Um Students are not warned of any potential pitfalls, unintended consequences, or cost-benefit trade-offs inherent in considering how the principles are is to be applied. A uh, core component of restorative justice is to be internalized as unquestionable moral good. Just like we said, you're not allowed to question it. No reasonable limits placed on its expectation, delivery, or, prop or proportionality. They're simply told that it has to do with making these things better over time. And it, it never seems to be done. You know, that, that's another thing that occurred to me is that it, it's really not in their best interest if this problem, quote unquote, is ever solved. Just like, you know, if for some reason, you know, uh, Jesus was to appear and destroy Satan, the church would lose an awful lot of power because at that point, well, nobody's going to go to hell now. What are we going to do? And, you know, um, just like certain diseases, maybe, you know, maybe big pharma may not, it may not be in their best interest to cure these. It's much better to just keep treating it. You know, Ibram X. Kenny might Neil, have to get a real yeah. job. <laughs> Neil, harm does not get better one time. Harm gets better over time. And it and maybe that takes an infinity of time. And, right. and and maybe that means that we have to manage everyone and control exactly who gets what shit at what time and how much and and well don't worry, we'll tell you what it is. We'll we're the experts. We'll tell you what who gets what when. Just shut up and listen to us and, and yeah. obey. You and know, I'll take um, I'll also also take my cut. Don't forget my cut. Right, $25,000 for a 45-minute Zoom call. I'm never going to get over that. Um, as one of my common viewers says, silence is violent, violence, but also words are violent. You know, as an excellent example of like, you know, there's just, if you're not part of the, the super selective club, then, then no matter what, you're, you're automatically wrong. Um, so let's go ahead. Uh, you know, now we're on to what you said, uh, unapologetically black. You said this is one of the more important parts. Right. One of the 13 principles, unapologetically black. And we're going to hear what that is. Okay. So the last one I talk about today is um, unapologetically black. And I think this one scares teachers the most. It scares white teachers the most. Um, because they don't know what an unapologetically black, black looks like. And they're afraid of hearing, well, what about if I'm unapologetically white? Honey, you live in unapologetically white. That's what your life existence is. Um, so for me, it's celebrating everything that's black. It means that some days in my classroom, my hair is not blown out and it is a nice frizz and it's like ready to go. It means that they, it means that Carl walks in with a do-rag in the morning because it's the morning, honey, and I'm not ready for you. Um, it means that my shoes, am I coming to American Nikes? It means that on the boards are pictures of my heroes, Biggie, Malcolm X, Marcus Garvey, in a fourth grade classroom. It means that they hear all the time, but what, um, oh man, there it is. So what happened in this class is we um, wanted to find out, they asked me why is celebrating blacklist important? And I said, 
well, let's do a little bit of research. So they started looking at magazine ads and Instagram influencers, and they searched Instagram ads for beauty. I happened to have a class with children who like makeup. I didn't know that was a thing in fourth grade, but it is. So they start searching, and what they find is that every single picture is white-based. There are a few of color, but they're mostly white-based. So I asked, what are you getting? And they were like, people want big lips. I was like, really? That's what you took away? And they're looking at it, and there are all big lips. And they noted that some of them actually draw the, the, the lip liner around the mouth. And so they note that there's not a lot of black models. So they did this data um, study and they went through ads and they were just kind of collecting how many of this, how many of that. So, okay. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into it. Uh, I mean, so if I was an alien from another planet and I landed on the planet Earth and I wanted to know what black was and I listened to this lady, what do you think I would come away with? What would black, what would blackness be? Um, Apparently hair, lips. <laughs> yeah, like hair, clothes, an oppositional relation to my students. Like, I'm not ready for you. Um, you know, Nor like do a certain, I have to be, I don't have to be ready for you. A certain style, a certain dishevelment or a certain something. I mean, um, I don't know exactly. I can't really understand what it is, um, but it seems to involve someone who's been arrested seven times. It's a talented, I think a talented artist, but someone who is, you know, had a relationship, I believe with a 14 year old, little Kim, right. uh, Biggie Smalls, right? Like, you know, I, I don't think that's the kind of hero that you want fourth graders to think of when you think of a black person. I right. don't understand that. Like, these are fourth graders. You know, put up, you know, uh, Booker T. Washington. Put up, uh, you know, people who actually did constructive things. Not that art isn't constructive, but really? Like Biggie Smalls? There's, um, there's a thing that Ben Carson does. He gives, he has a terrific monologue about taking a child out, in, you know, for a walk through the city. Um, you know, out the front door, down the sidewalk, you know, around the corner and, you know, sh you know, answering that question about what have black people done, daddy, like w as a black child, like, you know, are black, have black people done great things? And he shows them like, yes, like pavement, the sidewalk, the inventors of that, the asphalt, the who invented the traffic signal, the street sweeper, all these different incredibly valuable things for society, science, engineering. Uh, mathematics like there are great contributors to to society and everyone benefits from that like that why is that not something to look up to um but here we are we this is what it is um and you know the fact that not what percentage of models well first of all why are fourth graders doing looking at instagram like no Okay. Yeah. Like that's just <laughs> absurd on its face. Like that's your research project. Um, and I'm paying $35,000 a year to send my daughter to this. Um, but then just, just allowing for that to say, well, what percentage of black models do you think would be appropriate in 
in American society, where 13% of the population is black. Um, and what is white-based exactly? Like white-based, does that mean white models or models exhibiting white aesthetics or characteristics? And what is white? So there's just a lot of really slippery words being thrown around here. And I have no more understanding of what blackness is Watch, listening to this um, other than I, I better not say that I'm white or unapologetically be okay to be white because, honey, that's what your life existence is. So that's a thought terminating, um, you know, reprimand, essentially. The original and, sin. Yeah, like, um, okay. Um, so how would I, as a, as a nine-year-old who is white, but not unapologetically so, because God forbid I would be unapologetically myself, in my skin that I happen to be born with, but let's just say I wanted to participate in, in, in this unit. How would I do it other than, you know, absolutely uncritical allyship uh, and complete subservience to whatever you say I should say. Right. Uh, I don't know. Well, That's and one of the things that kind of comes away from this is like, I remember because of course they tell you that supposedly we weren't taught we, we are not taught any black history. And the other straw man is to suggest that conservatives don't want black history taught. I'm like, black history month has been a thing. I think my entire life and I'm 46 years old where, where it's just nonsense. And again, I'm not a conservative. I have yet to hear yeah, a single conservative yeah. say a damn thing about, we don't want black history taught. That's bullshit. It, it was stuff like, I don't want you to teach my kids that they are inherently racist solely by being white. That, that kind of right. crap. Is or that society is or that society is automatically set up so that you're you have to lose if you're black like your destiny is fixed because society is corrupt that i think is the really bad thing well, um, and, but yes exactly what you're saying yeah and well and when well and when it becomes a problem is like again because the varying degrees of radicalization right so like at this level they they may not necessarily imply that there's a specific reason why these great black people achieved these great things. It's not until you get up to say that, you know, Rutgers professor at college's level where they start kind of insinuating that black people came up with these scientific things because they are black, as if that being black itself is what created, that's when it starts to be a supremacist ideology. She gave um, an example of supposedly this slave that, um, allegedly you know was actually the real source of uh of where vaccine technology comes from you know and and to me what bothers me okay so like during black history month i learned about charles drew you know inventing the technology that allows us to do blood transfusions i learned a bunch of stuff about george washington carver and i thought he was cool and there was nothing wrong with especially at that stage i would say of the game of like exposing people to these people but this kind of comes back to one of the things that uh, Morgan Freeman said, he felt that Black Life, that uh, Black History Month was ridiculous. He's like, you're going to regulate my history to a month. You know, Black history is American history. Why don't you just make sure that you're diverse in, in the Americans that you talk about? And that's when you start to see where it becomes a problem is that a person like this professor from Rutgers would say that George Washington Carver invented those things because he's Black and is therefore superior in some way. Like, to me, what I don't like about this, and this is one of the things that's in those 
you know, founding documents of critical race theory that I've been slowly trying to force myself to read is that I was kind of being raised to believe that the color of your skin was irrelevant to your merit. Your merit was what was, was your merit, not, well, it's because a white person did it or a black person did it or an Asian person. That's racism to suggest that one race is good at this and one race is not good at that. There are cultures that can be good or not good at things, for example. You know, that's fine. You know, the, the Asian thing, it, it, there, you know, there is a cultural thing that has to do with cult, you know, with them supposedly being good at math, just like Jews are talked about as supposedly being good with money. But there are cultural reasons for that, too, you know, that have to do with their history. You know, um, the best basketball players happen to live, you know, in the inner city. They're not actually all black, but it, there's a cultural reason for that. There's no and, you know, there there could be little genetics here and there, you know, that might contribute in some way to some of these things. But it's kind of like at the end of the day, we were being taught, okay, sure, there's some differences, but who cares? Let's celebrate that. The differences are cool. Like, I remember probably one of the most powerful presentations I ever watched back when I was a kid, scientifically analyzed the differences between the races and explained what they were and why they were. So, for example, you know, they, they pointed out that Asian um, people have slanted eyes as an adaption to their environment. And this is why they have it, you know, and then they talked about like, why do this, why does this race have flared nostrils? Why does this race have darker pigment? Why does this race not? But they did it in such a way that it almost made it cool. Like, oh, this is really interesting. All these different races have all these adaptions, you know, but what the core principle behind all of this was at the end of the day was we're still all the same species. These are just adaptions to certain circumstances. And that's the only reason why we have these differences, you know, and to me, that's a positive message, you know, and my kids again, cause I said like, I, you know, they've been around diverse people their whole lives. They don't analyze people's worth in any way based on what they look like. I thought that was the goal. You know, I thought that's what we were supposed to be trying to achieve, but instead it's not like, that's the other thing is, is that there seems to be this, like you pointed out segregation and I, and I forgot to mention this earlier, there's a real push for trying to resegregate us and that somehow that's supposed to be better, you know, and then that creates a circumstance of othering essentially where you segregate everybody and then you put them in those segregated spaces so that they could have segregated experiences. As you put it earlier, I wanted to say this and I forgot. And you, then you got to imagine what kind of psychological impact it has on you to be put into those groups. And then it starts to remind me of that green eyes, blue eyes experiment um, you know, and the, the funny thing to me is, is that I, I need to study her work a little closer. I forget her name. You probably could just rattle it off, but there was a, a person who just yeah. went around doing that to teach people about racism. Yes. I, her, I, her name escapes me too, but I know exactly who you're talking about. Well, the point is, is that yeah. I took away from it was, well, yeah, you could do that to anyone though. That's the whole point. And what are they doing right now? They're spending a whole lot of time telling us who the green eyes and who the blue eyes are. It, you know, th that's what they're doing. They're doing it on purpose. And that's what she would do in her little experiments where, you know, to those of you who are not familiar with this, basically she was a, a teacher who would go into a classroom and then like divide everybody up by their green eyes or blue eyes or whatever. And, and then try to like get the, the, the children's behavior to change based on that segregation. Um, and it would work, you know, I guess she could replicate the experiment, but it was to try to teach people about racism. And I'm like, well, now you've just proven that it's, it's a social construct that people can create. So why are we spending all of this time telling everybody how important the color of our eyes or in this, in the reality, the color of our skin is, 
Why does that have to be the first thing that we start looking at the second we meet someone? Why do we have to start analyzing everybody specifically by their skin color before any other aspect of who they are? Because that's supposed to be what yeah. we were getting away from. Well, imagine that you had, I think I might've said this last time, but I'm not sure. Tell me if I'm repeating myself, but imagine if you, you had people that believe the earth was flat, right? And then, you know, the people do the math and they discover the observation. Actually, it's round. Um, do you need, how much time do you need to devote to the people who believed, previously believed consciously that the earth was flat to undo the biases surrounding the flatness of the earth and how long do we have to dwell on, you know, well, maybe you still are thinking that the earth is flat in some way that's affecting everything else that you're doing and how you're moving through space and time. So you really need to investigate those biases to truly get that the earth is round. Like, no, you just are like, no, the earth is round move on. Um, those who still don't belong to the flat earth society, of course. But I mean, that's kind of the analogy that I have. Like, okay, fine. It's a social construct. Well, right, and that's you know, let's let's go. Um, and and consciously, sure, there are lingering biases because we are, you know, in some ways racist side. But you know, when they sh when they come up, you consciously you're like, oh yeah, no, okay, fuck that thought. We're gonna move on, right? You don't you don't build a whole identity. You don't continue to 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 nurture and and you know contemplate your navel around an identity which was constructed through you know, violent means to begin with. Right. Uh, and then make it's like sure a hall of mirrors. Well, right. And make sure that it's at the, the center of every one of our interactions. And that somehow the, what, what ends up out the other side of that is less like, cons like basically less treating people differently based on their race. That just doesn't make any sense. And that's right. why it's like a to B and then somehow we jump to C, but no one ever. Well, like, th yeah, that's one yeah. of the reasons why, like, when I did my video um, about the definition of racism, I, I pointed out that they will say that, you know, that the the most racist black supremacist who wants to see genocide is still not racist because they don't have the power to do it. And I asked the question, when is this man, because I played a video of a guy literally saying the answer is to exterminate white people. Um, he was an African, like, American studies professor who spoke on C-SPAN after Katrina. And he said, the answer is we need to exterminate white people. I mean, so when does he become a racist? Is it, is it, is there a moment? Is it when they're putting us on trains? Is that when he's a racist or, or is it like a little bit less than that? Yeah. How much power you're saying, like at what point in, as he gains power, does it suddenly become suddenly power? Now we have is to it, do something at this point. Yeah. Right? right. Right. That's a, that's a good question. Is it and when I, you're putting and, him on trains? Yeah. And I broke him down with, the idea that, well, if that's the case, the Nazis didn't have any power. So did they not become racist until mm -hmm. they did? Because, yeah, yeah. And they never want to go with that because that would mean, wait a minute, you mean there was a moment they weren't racist when they were walking around talking like that? Right, um, <laughs> right. Yeah. True. So, yeah. <laughs> lionizing Colin Kaepernick, how can a pedagogical, ped, ped, pedagogical approach can be represented as collaborative and constructivist, yet still result in foregone conclusion? Any like, thing you want to say before yeah we... just this is fifth grade we've moved on from fourth to fifth grade and now the fifth grade teacher is going to take over and tell us a little bit about how he runs his class and this is the guy colin kaepernick who said that his time in the nfl making millions of dollars playing a game was very similar to slavery <laughs> mm -hmm. so to begin the year off um i like to 
ask kids, what are some of the things that you want to learn pertaining to past events, current events? And one of my kids this year said, hey, Colin Kaepernick. And so we wanted to look at the facts and the fallacies that exist within Colin Kaepernick. So we do, I give them, all the kids have one-to-one, so they do research. And so I'm just writing on the whiteboard. I'm writing on, I'm writing on a whiteboard a lot of different things. They're saying unpatriotic. Some people saying he's a patriot. Some people are saying this, that, this, that. After that, I asked them, why did he start kneeling? And I just leave that question, right? Because we like to work from a constructivist standpoint, right? We're going to facilitate it, but we want you to create your own meaning. So then they researched that. And then kids are coming back now saying, oh, he was sitting down at first, and then he started kneeling. Why did he kneel? Now, the kids are able to articulate that there was a long snapper who used to play for the Hawks. So people here from Seattle may get a little excited. But he was an Army beret named Nate Boyer. He wrote a letter to Kaepernick stating, hey, you know, his feelings about what he was doing. Him and Kaepernick met. And they came to an agreement. Nate Boyer articulated to him, when a fallen soldier dies, that they take a knee out of respect. And Kaepernick definitely articulated to Nate Boyer that, hey, I have no disrespect for the military. And they came to this agreement of taking a knee. Now, we see what the right-wing media did with that, right? They spent it. Even Nate Boyer has come out and say, oh my God, they spent it. It was never intended to look as a, a sign of disrespect, but propaganda is everything, especially throughout history with African-Americans. So after that, I wanted the kids to look at the Star Spankle Banner. Okay. Um, Get into it. Yeah, so this is really interesting it's kind of where the rubber meets the road as far as how teachers conduct classes how the story they tell themselves and other and other people stakeholders you know uh administrators and parents that they are leading what's called a constructivist class so this is the idea that the children facilitate their own learning instead of the sage on the stage which is you know, the, the expert up there talking, it's the guide on the side. So this idea is that the teacher is there to help guide the students to learn about what they're curious about. So that's why he says in the beginning, what would you like to learn? And the kid says, Colin Kaepernick, of course, it's like, um, it's a little bit like improv comedy, right? Some people throw out some stuff, but you ignore the stuff that does, it isn't what you want to talk about. And you take the thing that is, so there's a little bit of stuff like that that goes on as a teacher. I know because I've done this. I've seen it happen. And then you, and then the, the way it usually goes is you get the kids to talk about all their prejudgments. Now, why do we have school? We have school because the children don't know things, right? So we want to get them invested. But really everything that they come to school with, all their thoughts, all their prejudgments and stuff, well, we, we want to get them involved. So we put them up on the board, all the things, and then we throw out a guiding question. And this is the prompt to have them, through curiosity, 
start to do research. Now, this is not all bad. This is actually kind of good. Um, it's one way to do stuff. It's not always the best or the most economical way to do it, but it does, it can help with student engagement, right? So there may be, you know, not something so manipulative about this, right? So he says, so what's the guiding question? The guiding question is, why does he kneel? Okay. Now, that's a very particular type of question that is not necessarily answered for the reasons. Like, we never get into, you know, why does he kneel instead of sitting? Why did he want to sit initially? Well, they get the story of Nate Boyer, and it's a very interesting thing, and it may be more detailed than, than the media truly did, you know, represent. A lot of times it misrepresented, but they didn't get into that. Um, but, you know, what's the real question is, well, he's, why did he protest in the first place? Why was he sitting down? What's the point of him doing what he's doing? We never actually get to talk ob objectively about whether, you know, whether the data supported that decision to make that political statement. Um, you know, we're immediately get off into this thing about the story, right? And so to what extent is the teacher kind of got at this thing in one particular way? Of course, they're also using Google, I'm sure. Right. Right. Which is not exactly the most objective thing. No. And, you know, so they're they're coming at this and, you know, this is how it takes place. This is a real, I think, a very accurate example, because I've seen it myself, how this works, of how a teacher can steer a class once that moral framework is in place to interpret reality in a certain way without seeming to do it um, in a ham handed way. OK. Of course, he talks about the right-wing media, how they spent it, right? But, sure. you know, without anything about how, okay, left-wing media also spins things too, right? There's the, 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 the foot is definitely on the scale. Um, and also, why is the protest justified in the first place if it is? And how could we, you know, how could we talk about that? Um, there's nothing, and we may get into this later, there's nothing about necessarily... Well, what are the real questions here? Freedom of speech, freedom of the NFL to actually make decisions about, you know, the conduct of employees when they're, um, you know, when they're on the job. These are important questions that we weigh against each other if we want to have a real balanced discussion. Uh, we have to talk about, you know, well, did he have any other options other than the two minutes, which many people think are a sacred time, you know, where the people come together for this thing. He could have, you know, he's a popular sports figure he could have written in any number of outlets about his concerns he didn't right. have to make a statement the other thing is what about impact over intent what about the impact on the people who participate in this collective experience around pride in the country to have it impacted by one of the people they come to see behaving differently and sort of imposing their own thing can we talk about that so there's all these different ways to present to have a real debate about the issues, but sure. no, it gets sort of steered into this thing about, you know, well, these, you know, he was doing this thing and then he compromised. So he looks good. Um, so I, I just, it, it's a great example of, you know, the complexity of what happens in a classroom, I think. And I think that the, the teacher's being fairly honest about how he does it. Um, but of course he is biased. Uh, and, and that comes through. And you're going to see even more in the next clip. What it reminds me of is, have you ever seen the film Devil's Advocate? 
Yes, yeah. There's a moment in question when uh, Al Pacino playing, in my opinion, one of the best versions of Lucifer slash the devil. Um, there's a point where the main protagonist, Keanu Reeves' character, confronts him and said, you did it. You made her lie. He's like, I don't do that, Kevin. I just set the stage. You pull your own strings. You know, as in that's Lucifer justifying how he goes about corrupting people because he can't override free will. Because right. that's like an essence. So I just set the stage and then you do it, you know, right. as if right. that somehow absolves him of all responsibility of the people that he's destroying. Or in this instance, mm -hmm. you know, absolves this person's responsibility. Well, I was just asking questions and then this conversation happened as if this would just naturally organically happen on its own, you know, right. regardless right. of any kind of like guidance, you know, that right. and that's where the, go ahead. And this school is the University of Chicago Lab School. It's a high school on the south side. It is, I think one of the trustees is, I forget his name, but the guy who actually wrote the University of Chicago Principles. So they are a very left-leaning, left-liberal school, and there's many stories about that um, that I could tell, but I won't go into it. But, you know, they also get to say, they get to have it both ways. They get to indoctrinate the kids, but they also get to say, because of the pedagogical strategies that they're using, we actually have a debate on why we need to have reparations in America. Or we get to, you know, it's student driven. So really, we're not indoctrinating the kids. We're letting the kids come up with these with the stuff. And, you know, we just guide them, right? We're going to guide their investigations. And this is all going to be constructivist. So that that's, that's a big part of um, maintaining this illusion um, when there's all this other stuff going on. The reality is, is that having been around diverse groups of children, the last thing they're talking about is their race. <laughs> like, yeah, that's probably not unless they were conditioned by someone outside of that. They're not talking about that. There's another clip which I wanted to include, but there wasn't space in the article where this same teacher explicitly says, like, we're talking about whitewashing. We're talking about white supremacy in the fifth grade classroom. We are explicit about it. So, you know, that was in the in the video that was just prior to this clip so they are ex race explicit in that way too as well Well, if you have a if you have a second you can throw it to me on twitter and i'll pull it up yeah i could i could uh i could do it um i don't know if i have it on my laptop but i might have to dig for it but maybe i can dig for it while we talk about the next one sure sure um, yeah so moving on, then we come to the next one, which is our racist national anthem. Um, before I even get into this, one of the things that I wanted to point out was during Yuri Bezmenov's lectures, when they asked him how what was the solution to undoing ideological subversion, meaning communist uh, KGB ideological subversion, the, the solution is patriotism. Patriotism is the way to counter ideological subversion. And that's why they need anything that looks patriotic to be fascist and racist. But that was just my like prelude to this. Um, but we're going to go ahead and take a look at this clip now. The first verse says doesn't include this, but when you get to the third, they're celebrating the death. And the kids, it's amazing what they're able to articulate. Right. I, I like to document a lot. Just pause here for so a second. For, for oh, sure. One second. Um, on a book that we can. Sorry. One second. That. And so, there, go ahead. Um, so just prior to this, he's he talks about how 
he's looking to the Star Spangled Banner. And this up here is the third verse of the Star Spangled Banner. The Star Spangled Banner has four verses. Uh, initially, Francis Scott Key apparently wrote four verses. And this third verse, what he has highlighted here is when he says they're celebrating the death. Um, they're he, his claim that he's made clear to the students, basically told them this, walked them through it, had them parse the old English. Um, and then so, when he gets to this point where he says, um, no refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. He's saying that this is, that there is no way for a black person to read this and, and not be attacked, not believe that this is, you know, written for them. Now, this is about the famous War of 1812, the Battle at Fort McHenry, right. where there were mercenaries and slaves fighting actually on both sides. There were there were uh, free blacks and slaves on the on the uh, American side as well as on the British side. Right. And Francis Scott Key is here referring to the British mercenaries and slaves that were fighting against uh, the United States. So. At, in World War One, this verse was totally removed. It was totally taken out, and we had no one has sung this for a century because Britain was our ally in World War One, and so they removed this, and no one—it's not been a part of anything. People barely even know the second verse. He doesn't mention that, right? To him, this is just as relevant as the first verse, uh, and so I just wanted to lay the background of this sure. uh, before we move well, on in addition to the fact that you know yeah. world war one you know so that was quite a bit before wokeness <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh, oh, but, no, because, oh go ahead no no uh no go ahead that's okay go ahead sure he are getting an understanding of kaepernick like wow not only is this uh man doing uh fulfilling his constitutional rights but he's standing up for something that's even bigger than himself and so now, here's the full picture, which I love with this afro here. So now, what does believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything, mean to you? I want you just to take a minute and just discuss it with someone next to you. And then we're going to come back and I'm going to show you exactly what the kids in my classroom did with this. So one minute. Okay, so... <laughs> yeah, joke. I would say, well, if it were me, I'd be like, I'm about to sacrifice my social life by pointing out that this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But, but anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. So just the context is he's giving this lecture in front of other teachers in the conference. Mm -hmm. So he's having them enact what he does in class with the kids. And, you know, this is a what's known as just a total softball question that doesn't has no criticality or or, you know, uh, even handedness in talking about the issue. It's really just like, hey, let's put up this Nike slogan and, you know, talk about how it resonates with you. I mean, that's not even really even inquiry by any definition. Right. And that's it, the notion that he sacrificed everything is kind of ridiculous, too. The guy's still a millionaire. I mean, oh, he's. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's even. Yeah, I somehow forgot to man mention that point. <laughs> no, that's it's a pretty fine. obvious one in the article. Yeah, I should have put that in there. Well, it's like uh, I have a a picture that I put together of all like of just a group of panelists on MSNBC discussing Kyle Rittenhouse, and I put up all of their net worths, and every one of them except for uh, 
oh my goodness i'm gonna forget his name just because i need it but he's like a known race grifter who engaged in like a, a race hoax uh where he claimed that his uh um client because he was a lawyer uh his client was uh you know supposedly attacked it turned out the whole thing was nonsense and then even despite the fact that that got exposed this guy is still a pundit who can just go oh, talk everywhere. Yes, Al Sharpton. Yeah, yeah. He was the only non-millionaire, yeah. and his uh -huh. net worth was still five hundred thousand dollars. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. Every and the, the one who made the most was the crazy, extremely racist professor who's worth seventeen million. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's I why I put in the end of my little meme. It said their net worth shows their struggle. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. The the, the they're deep struggling struggle against of their the lives. man because the poor. You know, the poor white trash, what Kyle Rittenhouse got away with shooting people in self-defense. They've got it so hard. Um, but anyway, um, did, so did you have more about this clip? We'll just talk about it. Um, yeah, let's keep it rolling. Let's keep it rolling. Yeah, go ahead. All right. All right. So I hear a lot of interaction. I guess I would like to hear one person's perspective because this is exactly what we do with our kids, right? They're having these discussions, just like you all are right now, right? After we have built a certain foundation and that foundation is great to build, right? Because now when adults are questioning my kids, like, why are you sitting on your hands when a Star Spangled Banner or National Anthem is being played, they're able to articulate it on a lot of fronts, right? Not only are we talking about social injustices, against blacks being killed by unarmed police officers, but they can he now articulate how racist right. the Star Spangled Banner is. Yeah. So, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so so here it is. I mean, the kids are sitting on their hands, and earlier in the video, there's a, there's a part where he's talking about how he... Um, he knows that parents are going to ask questions about what he's teaching and he wants the kids to be able to defend their points of view. Right. Um, and this is, you know, this is where it is. So when the kids are sitting on their hands, protesting the national anthem, like their new hero, Colin Kaepernick and their parents are upset, you know, he knows that their kid, that his kids are going to be able to say, um, well, no, mom, because the third verse is racist. And when mom says, what do you mean? Um, their kid is going to have an answer. Um, and though so they can't just say, uh, you know, they're, they're, he's essentially turning their kids, carrying the kids into activists with this one-sided historical analysis. Right. And just leaving out all of the context or the fact that that verse was deleted and, you know, like, as in nobody uses it anymore. Like as if nobody could have come to any awakenings about it because it, it well, that kind of comes back to, like we said, reparations, you know, like, well, it doesn't matter that you've undone it. I, I still feel bad. So, you know, my, my foot is still throbbing. So therefore you still got to pay mm -hmm. for this, this thing that we, that right. happened before you were even born, you know? Um, so, I think that uh, the, the thing, you know, that's why I pointed out earlier about how they need anything that's patriotic to be racist or fascist, because that's actually the best way to undo ideological subversion is to make people, you know, feel a certain way about their country. You know, like if you're patriotic, like, and I told, like when I was on Good Logic show, I pointed out because he's more right and I'm more left. I was like, 
but I'm still an American and you're still an American and we're still part of the same team. You know, the Eagle needs two wings to fly. They can't have any thinking like that. We can't have anything that unifies us because they need us divided. You know, um, we can't have any discussion about how we're all the human race. I think that was actually on the, the pyramid of white supremacy. You're not allowed to say that either. Oh, yeah, so, right. No, that we're all the human race is bad. Right. Can't be saying yeah. that. You know, like, and again, it comes, that's, I was mentioning earlier and I didn't really put it down. I think it was Kimberly, might have been Crenshaw. One of the, but anyway, one of the original writers that's quote, credited for critical race theory when she was saying that the black nationalist separatist version of Malcolm X was right and that Martin Luther King was wrong. You know, at the core, they they think that segregation is better for black people. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it somehow assimilation, which is what they they say Martin Luther King advocated for, was was just white power. You know, it was it was a power move by white people to stay in power. The whole idea of, you know, literally bringing everybody together as to one society instead of you know, having everybody separate. You know, so that's why they, they've got to keep fighting this idea and that's why colorblindness needs to be labeled as racism, even though it's most obviously not. Yeah, and it was it was self in the, in that paper mapping the margins by Crenshaw. It was self consciously chosen to to associate with your black identity as a vehicle for liberation, and right. it had to do with entitlements. It had to do with explicit uh, things like affirmative action and payments, state payments based on identity. Where that was the vehicle. Well, you well, you know what? It actually pays better to get. You know, we can get more equality, true equality in their minds, which is really equity and just stuff. If we uh, if we identify as black rather than as human beings, um, right? So that's what we should do. It just pays better. It's just a better strategy. It was never about truth uh, from the beginning. It was always a consequentialist position. Right. And it, I was just thinking about this because it's something that came up during my recent video specifically about slavery was that they bring up slavery a lot and they, that's the original sin of white people. But when you find out, for example, that the Cherokee nation <laughs> owns, oh, slaves, yeah. Yeah. you know, oh, what are you going to do now that you, you guys said black and indigenous people listed here. And um, it seems as though there was enough. So do the Cherokee also, are they, are they guilty of the original sin? You know, well, well, no, you see not enough of them. Oh, so what's the number, you know, what, what is, is there a certain number of people that have to be involved in something before you can hold everybody who looks anything like them accountable for what they did? You know, is there, is there a limit, you know? Um, but anyway, yeah, the other way they square the circle on that is to say, you know, well, the racism was systemic and the systems were in place that would allow the Cherokee to own slaves. And so they were profiting from, you know, even though they were horribly persecuted, every identity is intersectional. And so they were profiting from white supremacy by having slaves. So in a way, like it doesn't, it doesn't take away from our whole premise. Um, so Cherokee can actually, even the Cherokee, um, could benefit from white supremacy in that they own slaves. And that somehow, though, I, I have a feeling that nobody's going to ever call out a Cherokee activist in the middle of one of these we all hate white people sessions. You know, oh, no. um, they'll oh, no, have no. some weird way. You know, like that was one of the things about, I also pointed out about everything's going to be all white, is that they have, of course, a Arabic uh, Muslim woman mm -hmm. activist who's, 
crapping on white people and then come to find out the actual origin of slavery is Arabic countries in Mesopotamia were allegedly the first that were found to do it. You know, it, they, they always have some way to bring back the original sin to only be white people. And, you know, we have to tell the complete story about the Atlantic slave trade by leaving out, you know, the fact that they were sold into the Atlantic slave trade by African kings. We don't want to go back that far. Hold on a second. You know, we're, we're only going to talk about what happened after they got over here. You know, um, uh, yeah. And even even, you know, something that doesn't get talked about in the Arab slave trade is that, you know, why aren't there black people in, in Arab countries? Um, there are mm -hmm. some, but there really aren't many. And that's because they castrated those slaves. You know, they, right. you know, they didn't want them mating with, you know, and a lot of them brought over as, you know, harem attendants and stuff. Um, so, you know, we don't want them mating with the, they wanted them to be eunuchs and that's right. why. So, but, but again, it's, it's only white people who ever engaged in that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course. Yeah. Well, they, you know, they talk about it as a unique invention, the racialization of it in particular, right. the particular, a unique flavor of slavery that that is exists in the Americas, the colorism. You know, there's something to that, but to to make this to not talk about the larger context of slavery as being a human universal, and in fact, the thing that is really unique about a Europe European societies is that they ended slavery. Right. Um, you know, they before many of these other countries, you know, America was behind some of the European countries, of course, like you pointed out. But we fought a war because slavery was tied into our economy that we fought a war to end it. Right. That's what's unique. That's what's unique about our country. Well, that was one of the things I definitely revealed was that aside from the fact that the Arabic countries themselves not only invented it, they came out of it like near last. Mm -hmm. That yep. Africa itself had countries where it was legal all the way up to 1981. Mm -hmm. yeah, but yeah. anyway, so... Moving on to spoken word project gone. Many have been alarmed by recent cases of young children being turned into activists. And what follows is yet another example. Do you want to preface this or you want me to go ahead and play it? Um, this is a, this is a final project from fifth grade. And so this is a uh, spoken word. He had the kids, the teacher had the kids write their own spoken word pieces, memorize them and perform them. Um, the original video from the National Association of Independent School had the kids here with their faces like they showed kids in front of hundreds of teachers. No right. respect for whatever privacy or um, I don't know, maybe that maybe the teacher asked the kids or not, but still I wouldn't do it. So I blacked out the kids and you can but you can still hear the poem that they're going to recite. OK, here we go. And this is our poem called Gone. You always hear on the news, another one killed and gone. gone. Sometimes you just think, when is going to end? Emmett Till was beat to death and lynched, August 28th, 1955. Gone. gone. Trayvon Martin shot dead, February 28th, 2012. Gone. Eric Garner, an officer put him in a chokehold, his last words being, I can't breathe, July 17th, 2014. Gone. gone. Michael Brown shot dead, August 9th, 2014. Gone. Laquan McDonald shot dead, October 20th, 2014. Gone. Tamir Rice shot and killed November 22nd, 2014. Gone. Tamir Rice, the um, violent armed robber, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. they, you know, can't remember critical race series telling is a unfiltered, you know, full story. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, these are all different cases. You know, mm -hmm. some of them are horrible, right? You know, I think Laquan McDonald was pretty bad. Um, right. Oh, no, they definitely some of them are bad. Other, okay. the other one, Michael Brown, 
attacked a police officer, right? The right. whole hands up, don't shoot is a lie. Right. Um, you know, so the officer was acquitted. Um, Emmett Till uh, was a brutal torture murder uh, by racist thug, like racist thugs. Right. And to like lump all of these things together. Uh, anyway, just keep. Do you think keep that they going. spend any time correcting hands up, don't shoot? I have a feeling. Uh, they don't. I don't think so. No. <laughs> Here we go. Andrew Blinn hung in her own jail cell July 13, 2015. Gone. Orlando Castile shot and killed July 6, 2016. Gone. And this is just the beginning. Think before you shoot. Don't think it's amusing to see other people losing their life. And just remember these people only got killed because of the color of their skin. Gone. Oh, yeah. So I got to correct something I said earlier. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Tamir Rice wasn't the one I was thinking. I'm thinking it was Dante, right? That, the, oh, Tamir I, Rice was the little boy, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, with that, the toy that gun. Kind of yeah. so, that yeah, was kind of messed up. That was messed up. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you for pointing that out, Laura. I, saw, I, I forgot that, but I was a different eye in there. But um, but yeah, no, they, but I guarantee, as we just said, they're not going to correct any of these kids on any of their assumptions about any of these. And I'm sure if Dante Wright, you know, did come up in their conversation, they're not mm -hmm. going to discuss anything that he did, pre, you know, leading up to that either. You know, but yeah. either way, you know, again, I'm not saying that not all of these are, you know, that some of these are just downright bad. There's no question. You know, I'm going to forget the gentleman's name, but there's one where a cop just takes out his gun and starts shooting somebody. And he's like, oh, why yeah, did you yeah. do that? And he's like, I actually don't know. <laughs> or like the, right, the black right. man that was helping um, a mentally ill person and the guy's literally laying on his back with his hands in the air and the cop just shoots oh, yeah. him anyway. <laughs> And then oh, he's yeah, like, yeah. why did you shoot me? And the cop's like, I don't know. It's like, what the hell? You know, no, like, it's totally fucked up. I mean, there's no, so, so that, many fucked up things, yeah. No, but to that say that they only happened. got killed for the color of their skin when this happens to twice, you know, uh, what are the latest statistics? A thousand people murdered by police, murdered, you know, shootings, killings. 500 of them are white, 250 black, 250 Latino. Um, what about... Tony Timpa, right? What about these other people that are killed? This is a serious problem, right? State right. violence against civilians, against ordinary people. Um, you know, Tony Timpa died like, you know, I think he was the one where they were kneeling on his back, like George Floyd, two two officers. Um, there was a little, there was a boy um, who also died, a white child, you know, shot, like right. Tamir Rice. And so like, this is not, to, to tell these kids that these people died and that police shootings are, you know, completely against one race of people. I mean, that to me is just unconscionable. Well, right. It's in not addition, true. Well, right. Yeah. And that's as Laura pointed out, because I brought this up in my um, my show about the truth about police shootings. And it actually ironically ended up coming up in a conversation specifically about of all things sports, because like in the coaching community in sports, they will take and make video montages of parents behaving badly at sporting events. And then they'll mm -hmm. play them, you know, and then it occurred to me because it, it allowed you to look at it outside of it. And you're like, well, God, if I want to put together a compilation of just about any behavior, that's not too hard to do anymore. Yeah, Especially yeah. if I can take video samples from the entire country and an infinite amount of time, you know, at least within the time that things were available on video, right? You know, yeah. so like, and you can make anything look like there's way more of it than there really is. Like, imagine what would happen in the media 
if we just, I think actually that might even be why Ben Shapiro does this, but like when a cop actually does something heroic, then he'll put up the video of the cop doing something heroic. Now imagine mm -hmm. that we, you know, showed a bunch of good samples of things that police had been doing, you know, what kind of impact that would have, which is one of the reasons I think why, you know, Black Lives Matter is an organization, for example, in Canada, they stopped the pride parade and insisted that no, you know, no police be allowed to be involved in pride anymore, um, that you can't have any kind of positive depictions of police like they they're against. Oh, God, what was the name? There's a cartoon character that's a cop that's like a, a dog cop and they wanted him gone because it was a positive, you know, expression of a police officer. You can't have that. You know, um, oh, God. but that's the, so the point is, is just to say that they they needed to look like it's a much bigger problem than it actually is. But, you know, but like we said, you know, even in ourselves, we had to, you know, correct ourselves a little bit on some of our knowledge of the people in question. But they're probably not telling them the whole story behind any of these people attacking a police officer, attacking anybody. You know, mm -hmm. very few people knew anything about what Dante Wright did, you know, and that mm -hmm. was another thing that I was going to say kind of earlier when we were discussing like this supremacy ideal is that I had Derek Jensen on my show. He, um, you know, is a long time, like anarcho, uh, basically an anarchist thinker. And one of the things that he pointed out many years ago in one of his video presentations is like, have you ever noticed how violence down the perceived social scale is invisible, but violence up the perceived social scale is like a huge, like, you know, Oh my God, everybody's got to talk about this. Everybody's got to, you know, so, you know, like he gave several examples of it. This was many years ago. So it was before all of this stuff was coming up. But it occurred to me, we're now kind of in that situation where, first of all, when, when you watch things like Jesse Smollett, they want this guy to get off, even though he's obviously guilty. Um, Black Lives Matter uh, is still trying to raise money to bail out the, the uh, Waukesha Parade massacre killer. Like <laughs> they want to bail. Really? Out. Yes. They They're want to still collecting money for that guy. They're, well, they they they've been trying. You know, um, oh they they framed it as now this is the new bail project or whatever. The point is, is that they they have a really distinct thing where the facts are just not as important as the skin color, and that's why I said they want to invert what they perceive to the hierarchy to be because Justice Smollett should not be in jail according to them. Kyle Rittenhouse absolutely should. You know. Mm -hmm. And that's and that's really how they put it, you know, um, but very few people even knew what Dante Wright had done. For example, he, you know, um, he violently robbed a girl, you know, choked her, uh, you know, had a gun to her head trying to take her rent, you know, because he overheard her saying she was going to go pay the rent. Nobody even knows about any of that, you know, mm -hmm. um, and th that kind of stuff, you know, and I guess like, you know, the one I just brought up on one of my streams was that they finally got done with the grand jury to determine whether or not they were going to indict the cop who shot Makia Bryant. Oh, right. Yeah. But yeah, I guess she should have just stood there and, you know, he should have just stood there and let her stab the girl. In fact, well, what they, about the, what about the woman who would have been stabbed? That's the thing right. I was thinking about. Like what can he, she imagine her thinking about the situation and saying, well, I could come forward. I mean, she couldn't, there's no way she could really come forward and say, you know, thank you for saving my goddamn life. I mean, right. does she feel that way? And if she does feel that way, how free does she feel to actually say that? Well, public? that's why we never hear anything about Jacob yeah. Blake's victims. The, right, uh, victim. right. Yeah. Like, you know, she just vanished from the from the whole narrative. Can't talk I'm about sure her. that the media would not want to hear anything that her, her would-be victim would have to say on the matter. Well, right. Um, exactly. Yeah. 
And I, d- I doubt that she would be willing to say anything given the blowback that might happen for, for defending a cop. I mean, I don't know, but it's like, it's really, I have no, I have no information about it, but it makes you think like, it makes you wonder. Well, um, in addition, like other people pointed out, well, if a cop had just stood there and let her stab them, then it should be like, well, you see that, you know, they let them stab yeah. that black girl. And that's what <laughs> the right, cop was exactly. literally left with. No, once again, no right answer, you know? Right. Um, so this was obviously, you know, the spoken word project gone. You're, you're having them write this and, you know, the kids are just, you know, again, they're rattling off statistics and it's not to say that we shouldn't discuss these things. Um, I guess the other part of the narrative that is often missing here is that um, they don't talk about like there was a time in this country when we used to discuss the fact that there were criminals and that they were bad people. And that somebody yeah. should do something about that. Right, right. You like, notice why? that the criminal keeps leaving, like they're no longer in the equation, you know. Um, right. In addition to the, what is it? They call it over-policing. I, there are literally educated, intelligent people who say that the truth is there's just as much crime in quote-unquote white neighborhoods as quote-unquote black neighborhoods. But that the only reason why you see more arrests is because there's over-policing of the black neighborhood. And, you know, I put quote unquote on it because I think that's ridiculous. I live in a very peaceful town. It's not super diverse, but there are people of color living in the building I'm in right now. And I've never had to worry about locking my door. I don't have to worry about, you know, any of that. Like, and there's no, you know, there's no under policing. Every time I've ever called the cops, they were here within minutes, you know, but so, but the idea is, is to somehow invent this weird narrative that there is just as much crime here as there is in my original neighborhood when I grew up in Pontiac, where my next door neighbor ran a crack house and drive-by shootings were common, you know, and I, it makes me wonder how much, you know, they, I wonder how much these kids have been taught about the realities of urban reality and crime, you know, or if, if that's even entering the narrative. Yeah, I can't, I mean, I can't speculate uh, even really for sure, but I mean, what, what I'm seeing is a pretty one-sided presentation um without i mean listen what i what i imagine maybe i'm naive but what i imagine is a classroom where you talk about the tensions between competing moral goods right like you have to have you have a hierarchy we all have hierarchies of principles right so safety and liberty and you know justice and you know, law and access, all of these different things. And there are practical limitations to those things. And if you want to have a conversation that actually gets kids thinking about what's really practical, practical solutions to social problems, they're all about competing cost benefits. And, you know, well, if we, if maybe if we do this, it will affect this other thing. And that's not, you know, that's very often when you have two right answers, right? You have to pick, well, okay, if we do this, it'll hurt this, but if we do this, it'll hurt that. And like, that's, that is a thoughtful conversation. Not like, we're gonna teach you how to be good people and good people think this way about these problems. And we're gonna have a debate where you get to share with your preconceptions about things. And then, you know, I'm gonna lead you through this guiding question where you get to see how great this person is and how, you know, the right thing to think is this, but you're going to come to that conclusion on your own because you've been primed with these moral, with this virtue. 
and to, you know there is a right side of things so like that's that's to me is the difference here between something that's truly thought provoking and in service of the first option which which i think is preferable very often as a teacher you need to be provocative you need to turn things upside down you need to you know for the kids that think one way you want to give them the other thing and make them think again for the kids who think you know the opposite way you you give them that and you try to have them understand the best arguments for each other's points of view so you can right. you know that kind of thing is what i see that that was my education i went to a public school i just went i went to a pretty good public school i was lucky enough to get that and you know that's what i think is that's an education i don't know what this is but it doesn't seem like an education to me well, right. And that's honestly, it's funny is that I was actually because I just did that show again about brain development. That's a critical part of your developing your ability to think for yourself is that you need to be put in positions where those connections within your neural pathways are made. Like you, that's literally part of the yeah. process, you know, right. and if you're not exposed to that, you're not going to be as good at it as somebody who is. And that's why I mentioned in that in, in you know in that video, I was like, I've seen kids who were raised to critically think and they're not the same as kids who weren't, you know, yeah, um, definitely. And, you know, um, I think it was Dr. Gabor Mate pointed out when he was talking about epigenetic effects was that if you put a child in a dark room and they live there for the first, I think it's like five years of their life, their eyes don't develop. Like, mm -hmm. so if you're not doing things to, you know, to spur on certain kinds of development, then it just doesn't happen. I remember there was a little girl who had lived at a crack house and my mother was babysitting her. And she noticed that this girl, like she was just introducing the child to the concept that if you put something in a box, it's still in the box when you open the box later. The very basic concept mm -hmm. of reality that this child was not even conscious of, I think at like six years old. Oh, wow. And she that's was like, like, this is so oh, disturbing man. to her. Right. And that's just, that's if you don't cultivate this, which is what teachers are supposed to be doing, then, then, then kids don't have it, you know? Um, mm -hmm. and that's why, uh, you know, I pointed out cause that, that's what the video was about was trying to help, um, young adults, for example, you know, in their early twenties recognize that, you know, as we find out when we get into our forties and thirties, we look back on our times as an 18 year old and go, my God, I was so dumb. Um, mm -hmm. you know, but as teachers, we're supposed to be engaging them in these kinds of conversations and they don't want that anymore. They, they want one side told. And, you know, you got to go along only with that. And, and, and more importantly, they tell kids, don't ever expose yourself to anybody who disagrees with you. Um, you know, that Yale professor who talked about shooting somebody in the head, you know, shooting white people in the head with a gun, point blank tells people, if you're a person of color, don't talk to people who disagree with you about race. They just don't. Like, it's hazardous yeah. to your health. Like, and this is a psychologist saying, this is hazardous to your mental health. Do not engage in this. You know, um, it's like, so it, that's also the reason why, you know, Ben Shapiro shows up at these college campuses and shreds some of these kids because they, they don't have any capacity to do anything. They literally walk up to, to argue with him and they usually have their phone in their hands and they read whatever they're expected to, to you know, to say to him, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and to, at that point, they're not engaging with him anyway. They're just reading talking points, you know. Um, mm. And that's when, something that worries me because our ability to critically think is so vital to our ability to be not just to be human, but to be free. Like, yeah. One of the, yeah. One of the things that um, Orwell points out in his writing 
is that if you get to a point where objective truth is being thrown into question, like you shouldn't be allowed to have objective truth, then that is a sign that some form of authoritarian government is trying to take hold. That if you can eliminate objective truth, the idea that something can just be objectively true, then that is a sign that some form of authoritarian, you know, whatever is attempting to try to move into your situation and take control. Because if you can get rid of objective truth, then they can just make the truth. They can make anything. The yeah. Truth. So well, that's objectivity. Anyway. That's objectivity on the white supremacy culture slide. That's that's what <laughs> yeah. that is. And they're saying they're, you know, they're casting a shadow on objectivity. And they're saying, you know, like this is not this is not something that exists. And I, I actually looked at that slide. Uh, I looked into the scholar who came up with that. And it really is just autoethnographic gibberish. Like she just mm -hmm. wrote it down one day. Um, and it went viral among social justice uh, folks. And they shared it. And it, be it just became gospel. And now you see it everywhere. Uh, but if you like look, she actually developed it into a, into a PhD thesis uh, in 2010. And you can go and they can read it. And like it's 200 pages of you know, stuff she thinks is true. That's it. You know, and there's, it draws on other scholarship, but they're just constructs that other intellectuals have come up with that are not really based on anything substantial. So it's just an avalanche. It's like an avalanche of, of references to other references to other references. There's not really much there, there behind it. Um, but, you know, if you, I, I actually, there was a QR code in that slide I followed it and I was like, okay, maybe they mean that objectivity is limited. Maybe they mean that it's only pertains to some contexts and not others. Certainly in social contexts, you don't want to, you know, people interpret art differently. You can't really say there's objectively good aesthetics, you know, but no, they were just flat out. Objectivity is not a thing. Like, okay, well, fine. I'm a math teacher. I'll just go shoot myself now. Like, okay. Like, <laughs> sorry, I'm not going to, I can't roll with that. So no. <laughs> Do you remember um, when I sent you that quote from 1984? <laughs> because it was perfect for you. Freedom yeah. is being able to say two plus two equals four. And then, and then we have, you know, six, what is it? Three months ago, we had a whole Twitter fight of whether two plus two equals four. And it's like, how can, you know, okay, now we're, we've, we've jumped the shark here. Math is racist. Yeah. Yep. Oh my God. Okay. So moving on. Um, so Black Lives Matter at school is widespread. I guess now we're kind of getting in, like you know, there's yeah. This place, is oh, this was a um, this was a quote on the in the presentation, mm -hmm. uh, a still image from the lecture from Huey P. Newton. Um, I believe a Black Panther. Yes, I think could be to look him up. Um, I think he might have been the minister of, um, what was he, the minister of, he was a co-founder of the Black Panther Party, um, and yeah, I think he was, um, oh, I, I have an running image. community support programs. <laughs> Free well, breakfast for kids, and then there were a couple murders in there. I don't know whether he wasn't. I don't know if he was connected to those. So here's uh, our guy. 
<laughs> that that's him. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Co-founder, so, racial leader of the Black Panther Party, was born in Monroe, Louisiana. Oh, he's born on the same day as me. Oh man! But in 1942, oh, wow. yeah, February 17th. I, I must also be destined he's to be your a black nationalist terrorist. Mother. Yeah, <laughs> he was named after Governor Huey P. Long, Newton's family mobile, blah 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 blah. But the point is, yeah, that's um. It's looking like a like a model citizen right here. Yeah, he was convicted of assault with a deadly weapon, repeatedly stabbing another man, Odell Lee, with a steak knife in mid-1964. He served six months in prison. By October, 20, this is in Wikipedia, 27th to 28th, 1967, uh, he was out celebrating the release from his probationary period just before dawn, October 28th. Newton and a friend were pulled over by Oakland Police Department. Officer John Frey... Realizing who Newton was, Frey called for backup. After fellow officer Herbert Heens arrived, shots were fired. All three were wounded. Uh, and then Frey later died. Uh, so I think there are conflicting accounts of this, um, but uh, he was convicted. Newton, Huey Newton was convicted in 1968 of voluntary manslaughter of the killing of the police officer. Um, so here is someone who's definitely a role model right? for the young. The revolution has always been in the hands of the young. The young always inherit the revolution. Right. And that's, and so what is his version? <laughs> uh, <laughs> like power fist. Yeah. Um, um, you know, no, black but, power. Excuse that's me. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Th thank yeah. you. Okay. Um, and uh, as long as you didn't show the okay symbol, then we're all right. Right. <laughs> no i won't do it um <laughs> right the the uh ex expert trolling um mm -hmm. so yeah so uh this is what we're dealing with okay so mm -hmm. um it's not everywhere black lives matter in school is i i know it's in several schools they like to talk about it being used in many schools um but Many of the things in the curriculum are not unique to Black Lives Matter at school, like impact, non-intent, um, the notion of, of harm um, resulting from uh, you know, words and behaviors rather than physical assault, the conflation of those two things. Sure. Um, restorative justice is certainly seen something everywhere. This is actually an excerpt from a thesis of a former colleague of mine who... Mm -hmm. Um, I recommend everyone read this because she is not hiding anything. This is a, a celebration of teachers who purposely seek to indoctrinate children. There is no, um, there is no hiding the ball, um, in this paper. So this is, uh, this is linkable from the insurrection piece. I don't know if you can – is the link – you can add the link below, but – The link uh, to your article is already. in the description, Okay, too, great. So they can find it there. Um, but, yeah, give this a read. It's really interesting. Uh, I sort of knew that about this person when I worked with them. Right. But um, it was really something to see in print what she felt is true. She also recent PhD uh, graduate. Um, I don't know the school exactly, but you can look up in the references. She ref references her PhD. So if you, so I think we basically, gosh, what is it? Two, two and a half hours, two hours, 15 minutes. This has no. been a marathon. 
Yeah, well, that's this is not uncommon for for YouTube streams. They're used. To oh, good. Okay. Live. Yeah, so nobody's going to be upset. Yeah. I'm sure. But um, the other thing is, is most of my people watch stuff later. But mm-hmm. one of the things I've determined because I have short videos and I have long videos, and sometimes I literally have to play my short videos during my streams because the culture of people who watch streams is not actually usually the same culture of people who watches five minute videos. Um, but if you play a five minute video during a stream, then they'll watch it. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. yeah okay. That it was sense, the same thing with some people like podcasts and some people prefer video. And I found that oh, yeah. not all of my podcast fans followed me over here, which is why I have to keep going ahead and turning some, like this one, for example, this was an overly visual. We can probably put this one into a podcast, but but anyway, yeah, no, we did, we did good. Um, you know, so I guess uh, to to bring all this around, what we're looking at here is is that you know they label it Black Lives Matter, and as you said, it's not always Black Lives Matter. It's you know, but it's a way of getting certain other elements involved. And of course, a school is not going to want to come out and say that they're against Black Lives Matter, which puts them in a situation to say that they support Black Black Lives Matter. So mm-hmm. if they support Black Lives Matter, and then Black Lives Matter has their own indoctrination system. Then of course they have to go along with that because they don't they don't want the political, you know, uh, consequences of you know of not giving Black Lives Matter what they want in the right. school, you know. Um, and I think that uh, th- there's a there's a long game being played here, and I think that you know obviously there's the Marxism angle on it that you know we've discussed. Um, and again, guys, you know, please make sure that you share Paul's work. You can find it in the description of this video, um, you know. But uh, in the, in the long run, I think that, you know, first of all, like I said, Black Lives Matter itself is a vehicle for them to get things that they want. And that's evident when you consider that there's so many, quote unquote, trained Marxists at the core of what Black Lives Matter is about. And it's not even the first time. I actually did some research. There was a, a black activist who was around like literally, I mean, we're t- still talking about black and white photo days, giving lectures about how this is something the Communist Party was trying to do a really long time ago. So it's not even, that's even pre-60s. So, you know, that they use race as a, as a way to, to find their way in. And then, you know, then it becomes about, you know, like I remember, for example, you know, specifically watching Black Lives Matter evolve that came down to, well, you know, we don't like Black people being shot by cops. And then like, then, it, you know, that was the consistent measure or you know, the message. And then all of a sudden, yeah, and communism too. You know, like or and and capitalism, like they had a, a way where they just kind of started to piggyback on it. And Antifa, you know, has their own way of piggybacking on Black Lives Matter, and then they've got their own radical communist ideas. You know, so they they have definitely a a strategy that they use to bring people on board with these ideas. And I think that you've outlined this here, and the fact that they can use the Black Lives Matter modicum to do that. Um, you know, is, is definitely a, a warning sign to people to be aware of it. And the funny thing is, when you go to Black Lives Matter National now, um, they don't even make any bones about it anymore. They just send a, they say end capitalism. There's a whole video series like Imagine a World Without Capitalism and stuff like that. And it's, um, I, I look now at it as how ironic as it is because now all of them have been revealed as being millionaires. And then when they, confronted Patrice Cullors about it. She's like, well, you know, I got to take care of my family and my money isn't really mine. It's my family's, you know, of course she's spending inordinate amounts of her money on herself. And it just reminds me of animal farm. All animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Like that's the inevitable evolution that came out of it was that she, the communist had some way to like 
put it in her head that it's acceptable that she should live in a you know that in a mansion even while the people that she's supposedly representing her proletariat are all living in you know in squalor and um i think it's unfortunate that it you know that it went that way but to be honest with you i'm kind of looking at it as did it really get corrupted or was that just what they were always working towards wasn't that always the plan you know, it was just to find this as a new way to bring communism back into the conversation, you know, and I say that as somebody, again, left-leaning, but, you know, the kinds of communists that are coming out of this, like, you know, actually, I don't know if I ever asked you, did you get to watch the Project Veritas video about the Antifa teacher? Um, I did not, oh, yeah, I think I did, yeah. He I had, like, an Antifa flag and a, and a yeah. picture of Mao on his wall and was bragging yeah. about how yeah. he's, I was like, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know if I shared it with you or not, but, like, yeah, yeah, they caught this guy just openly talking about it. He's just gushing about China and, like, you know, again, you know, all my friends would tell me, that's conspiracy theory, that's not real, blah, blah, blah. No, no, dude, here it is right here in front of you. Well, the, the nice thing about these folks is that they are very proud of themselves like they are the smartest people in the room they think that they're they have the answer and they can't help themselves br brag about what they're doing because they believe in it so right. and they and they're smarter than you so you know not you know not only are you a moral cretin but you're ignorant and they are only too happy to educate you so the good thing is that's why i always say if you if you want to you know you really want to get make an impact don't argue with people like that let them tell you what they're about and ask them questions and say you know tell me about like where do you think how could we have a more just society like let, let's let's talk about that and they will be only so happy to 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 let their views be known and see just see here's like a little piece of feedback great stream v so that's what i was telling you that this is not uncommon to streams my streams are actually pretty short um surprisingly compared to some people um, like Adam friended, he'll be on for eight hours at a time. I can't even believe that. Oh, but, wow. Amazing. Yeah. So it's not uncommon. Um, but streams again, it's some of it is also, I noticed is like a social thing. Like they like interacting in the chat room and that's, oh, that's cool. The people who want to do that, watch something together or watch party or whatever. But you know, um, modern left is anti Martin Luther King. They've almost gone all the way around back to Malcolm X. Well, if you want, if you read critical race theory, that's exactly what they want, that their objective. And the funny thing is, is they want like original black nationalist segregationist Malcolm X, <laughs> you know, not like, um, okay, I've come back from Mecca and realized, oh, wait a minute, there's white Muslims too. Hmm. They don't want that version of Malcolm X. They shot that guy. Um, <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah, no. And, but you know, there's so, some parts of Malcolm X, they actually don't want which is the self-reliance part like the part where you take responsibility for your own like you don't rely on the on the white liberal for things right um, like it's it's a grievance-based philosophy where you make the agent of your oppression they're responsible for your liberation you can't sort of do it on your own you have to you know get them to do the work and 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 you're kind of it just re repeats the dependency of it. If it was actually Mark Malcolm X, I'd be like, okay, like, I know it's like black militant and everything, but at least, you know, at least we can have a conversation that's realistic. Yeah, yeah, and that you, you know, we can. Um, the idea that you know self actualization is something that's achievable, and whatever 
you know, maybe by whatever means necessary. I'm not down with that, but at least it's something in the right. It's in the ballpark, not just sort of a, um, you know, it's not just blaming well, white at people. At least that everything. element of it for sure. And I don't think that they'd be on board with that for sure. Like that's, there's, there's never an absolute like direct reference that they can go with. They're never going to be happy with all of it because it's got to constantly yeah. be evolving so they can keep selling new books. But um, the, the other element to that I would, I would point out is that um, when we were discussing earlier, like if they really wanted to affect education in a way that would help people, this is one of the things, cause I'm working on a presentation to give it my own school because people are asking me to do it. But part of it is going to be, I understand the problem they're trying to solve. If you want to solve that problem, it needs to be done in the schools in those communities. And it wouldn't start with telling them that their real problem is the white man that doesn't even live in those communities. It would, and it also would not be with going to little country schools and telling white kids that the problem is, is that they're privileged. Neither of those things would actually positively impact the lives of the children who grew up there. And I know because I was one of them, um, you would need where, where's the activism about, like you said, you know, any form of personal responsibility. Where's the activism about staying in school? Where's the activism about education is important to liberate yourself from this poverty stricken situation. Um, you know, there's no activism towards that. And if you bring any of that up, unfortunately, because that's considered a conservative talking point, you know, that's the other thing is I despise the concept talking point because it's a way to just wave off something. It's like, well, somebody I didn't like said that. So therefore, we're not going to discuss that. Now, let's break it down. What, what is it that you don't like about said talking point? You know, just because it's just because Ben Shapiro said it, does that automatically mean it's wrong? And unfortunately for them, it's true. And it's not to say because the right does that, too. You know, is it a left leaning talking point? How about just is something a valid point? I don't care what side it's from, but um paul yeah, great. I, I, go ahead yeah i just wanted to add if you want if you're looking for what works like in a school there's a great short documentary that just came out i think a couple days ago about the economist roland fryer i put a link in the in the private chat um but uh maybe you could also put it in the youtube uh sure and so that that he talks about the five things that a school needs to succeed and he has empirical data on on exactly how it works. So check that out. It's I think that was really great. And also, I'm probably um, starting my own channel soon. That'd be fantastic. Uh, with, with a with a teacher friend of mine who um, is also renegade, you know, exile from from education. His name is Frank McCormick, and we're starting a channel called Chalkboard Heresy. Um, and we'll have a Patreon and hopefully we'll start coming up with our first videos this month. Um, and uh, so I'll be posting more about that soon. So make I'll be sure joining. that you, yeah, keep me in the, yeah. keep me informed about that. And I'll try to get, you know, when you get that started, let me know. Yeah. And I'll try to get you on some of these other shows. Cause I like, I think good logic, for example, would like you. I think strategic eyes would like you. There's a couple of other channels I think would really dig you. So when you cool. get that Thank done, you. I'll also put it under my featured channels. So just let me know. Great. Thanks a lot, Neil. And um, as Lucifer Doberman says, Sitch and Adam would love to have you on. Well, Lucifer, if you want that to happen, then you need to bring it to their attention because I've, you know, I'm sure that they would love to talk to him. Um, but get on with them about it. You know, Adam doesn't always respond to my tweets. He does sometimes, not always. So, but then here we have, you know, some uh, feedback. Chalkboard Heresy, great name. You know, and I would agree. 
definitely fantastic. And I'm, I want to thank you for, again for being on, Paul. Um, I always love having conversations with you. It was definitely, I think it was time again, like, you know, that we had another one. And, you know, when you do get your own channel, I hope you don't become too good for me. You can still come on. <laughs> no way, man. Yeah, I'll be. I'll come back. No problem. <laughs> for sure. I was mostly being yeah. silly. I didn't think yeah. you would do that. Um, you know, one of the things I've noticed that's a little different about YouTube than what I'm accustomed to, though, is like um, back in 2008 when we did this alternative media thing, everybody shared everybody's stuff. Like it was just understood you do this. I mean, unless you're absolutely opposed to what it is they're saying, you would do it to try to help boost the signal. And YouTube almost has kind of a competitive thing going on. I don't know if it's because people get paid more if they get more watch hours and they don't want somebody watching else and someone else's stream or whatever, but that's not my motive. I do, you know, I do take Patreon money, but I've made it clear um, from the beginning, I'm really only interested in becoming like basically whole as to where I was when I was working my terrible restaurant job. I don't want to make a ton of money doing this. Um, you know, but part of it also is that I just told my listeners, I'm like, you guys are going to, you're going to hear stuff sometimes that uh, you may not agree with, and that just needs to be okay. If you want to consume this product, that's part of the way it is. I want you to, I want to engage with you. I want you to think about things that I say, including the things that I don't agree with that you don't agree with versus, you know, vice versa. Um, because that's my objective is to try to get, I said, I'm not about right versus left right now. I'm versus thinking versus not. So um, you guys are listening to V radio. Check me out on V radio.us and Paul, where can they find your work right now? Uh, I link to most of my stuff off my Twitter. So Paul D Rossi uh, okay. on Twitter um, and also at legal insurrection. I've started with them. So I'm posting, regular stories on there legalinsurrection.com are you still doing substack i know i haven't i haven't i thought about it but then i didn't really get out get my act together and do it mm. i might at, at a later date but um for now I'm, I'm like posting there and and hopefully getting some stories in some other um journals media media outlets too we'll see all right well awesome i'd like to talk to you briefly off the air if you don't mind sure um, i know we've been chatting for a little bit i just like to always have a kind of a decompression after a show Thanks again for everybody for tuning in today. Please like, subscribe, and share if you're watching this on Rumble and on um, Odyssey. Thank you for listening. I will probably, again, turn this into a podcast, upload it as a podcast. You can go to my website, v-radio.us. It's just a series of links so that you can find me on all of my mediums. Um, I've been stuck at about 4,000 subscribers for quite some time now, and I have a feeling that that's not by accident. Um, I keep going up and down. Um, so... I haven't changed anything about my work aside from the fact that it gets out to more people. That really is the best way you can support what I'm doing. Um, again, boost the signal. If you like hearing this, if you can't afford to help me financially, then by all means, just share it. Um, make sure that you check out Paul on Twitter. I follow, he posts cool stuff on Twitter all the time and I'm constantly resharing it, you know, but you guys have to do the same. If you like this kind of media, then you need to support it. Even if it's not about, again, even if you can't, you know, become a patron or send me something on PayPal, um, you know, then you can still support it just by boosting the signal and getting it out there. At the end of the day, like, for example, you know, I, I am monetized again. I have no idea how long that'll last. The funny thing is I didn't even ask them to. They just did it on their own. Um, but I think I've added up about $1.30 of monetization because most of my videos will not, they're, they're not suitable for advertisers is what they say. Um, weird how that works. Uh, but you know, if you want to support me on Patreon, I'd appreciate it. Again, my goal is just to have like 10 
there was it no 100 patrons at ten dollars and that would be enough and i wouldn't ever need to be worried about it ever again i'd like to be in that situation i'm not um you know but you know if you can that would be fantastic if you can only do it once that's also fantastic i am disabled and out of work um i can't walk for more than about 30 or 40 seconds without help um before my back starts to give out as in literally i'll just fall down um so they're still working on that they're still figuring out what's going on in my guts i'll keep you guys appraised of it so but i just decided okay i'm gonna do this thing that i like doing but i had to change my relationship with it which is means that that's why i'm cultivating an audience of critical independent thinkers and i don't expect you to agree with everything i say i don't want an audience of like vosh zombies or stefan molyneux zombies for that matter you know who just agree with everything i say out of hand i want you to if you disagree with me to to engage with me in the chat, engage with me in the comments, you know, as long as you're respectful, I'm all about it and be respectful to each other. That's another thing that I've liked about my audience. I very rarely ever have to regulate you guys, even when you disagree with each other. And that's what I'm hoping for. So thanks again for tuning into V Radio.